This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey now, welcome to another episode of Run Vast Option. I am your host, Chris Vassar, a.k.a. Coach Vass. Thank you for listening. Today, I'm going to interview offensive coordinator and quarterback coach at St. John Bosco. A warning, this episode is heavy on stories. If you've listened to any of my podcasts, I know that we are very much in the vein of just getting right in a scheme, you know, giving a brief intro, but since Stephen is one of my best friends and he and I have worked together for four or five different teams. I don't know. We, we talk about it in the episode. We do get into a lot of stories, uh, some funny stuff. I let him tell embarrassing stories about me. And so, especially at the beginning, there is a lot of that. So I apologize. If you want to skip it, you can, Follow the show notes, and you can see when we start getting into the uh, nuts and bolts. But I don't know. It's a little different. But, uh, you know, when you have your best friend on, it's bound to happen. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, time for housekeeping. Housekeeping. I don't think you're sleeping. Housekeeping. Make sure you follow me on Twitter, at CoachVast, the show's account, at RunVastOption. The defensive podcast at MDGA podcast. Last episode on Make Defense Great Again was with former longtime NFL executive Randy Mueller talking about the draft. We will have our next episode will be with Adam Gaylor, defensive coordinator at Jenks High School. So make sure you check that out. Check out the YouTube, youtube.com slash coach fast football. Make sure to smash that subscribe button and turn on notifications. The last video that we did was the Whip Fire Zone deep dive into the Vic Fangio slash Raven slash Brandon Staley scheme. I will be doing another video defensive related on stubby coverage. More of a beginner's guide, but still still going to be good stuff for experienced coaches to take a look at. Also check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash Coach Vance. We got some North Dakota State offense coming soon. I know you guys are always like, oh, everything's defense, defense. Not, it's not always, not always the case. We got love for the offensive guys, too, so check that out. Speaking of defense, CoachTube.com. You can find all my courses in the show notes or Linktree.com slash CoachVass. Also, the website, CoachVass.com slash store. If you want to get your defensive coordinator, a quarterback tears mug, you should check that out. Lastly, make sure you subscribe to the show and rate and review it. If you got a few seconds, it helps coaches find the show. Uh, Lastly, before we get into it, this episode's a little long. We got a couple commercial breaks from our usual sponsors, Huddle and CoachTube. However, I'm featuring two books this uh, episode. 
from my friends Bobby Peters and Alex Kirby. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Make sure you check that out. They're both fantastic. And I will have some information about that. Without further ado, let's hear from my good friend, Stephen Lowe. My guest today is Stephen Lowe, offensive coordinator and quarterback coach at St. John Bosco High School in Bellflower, California. Coach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. Of course, of course. I mean, you are my best friend after all, and this has been a long time coming. I was trying to figure out how to shoe shoehorn you in on the defensive podcast, but I felt like this would be more appropriate. So normally when I get to this stage in the podcast, uh, I ask the coach to tell them how they got to Bosco and I kind of just shut up and let them tell their story. But because uh, I had some sort of hand in it and your previous, what, four or five jobs, I may <laughs> jump in at some points. But uh, go ahead and tell the listeners how you got to St. John Bosco and your coaching journey. Yeah, so um, I originally started coaching on my alma mater. Uh, back in 2002 and uh, coached some offensive line and, and stuck around there for a little bit and uh, ended up uh, going and, and uh, being a student assistant and eventually uh, a grad assistant at San Jose State uh, in strength conditioning. And um, it was at that time I had the, uh, the pleasure to meet uh, yours truly. Uh, and um, yep. We, we ended up struck a, a conversation after one of the games. I, I'd still go back to the games. And at that time you'd, you'd come over and, you know, you're obviously the DC at, at my alma mater. So, you know, I would spend Friday nights going to the games and, you know, kind of figured out, well, this defense is pretty cool. Who's this, who's this DC that's screaming, you know, across the field at the other, uh, at the other teams. <laughs> that OC. never happened. That never happened. Fake <laughs> news. Sad, sad. No, that definitely happened on multiple occasions. Uh, Just go home Earl. You don't want any more yeah, of this, Earl. Have, Just go home, Earl. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, might have called somebody with the uh, an old coach with a mustache, called him uh, Quaker Oats, man. Might have called him that. Just go home, but, Earl. Uh, Just go home, Quaker Oats. Yeah. Rich was like <laughs> grabbing me, like, shut up. Win here like you, act, or what do you say? Act like you've been here before. I'm like, I haven't been here before. F that. <laughs> this is all new to me. <laughs> But, uh, you know, end up meeting you and, and, uh, we struck up a conversation. I think, uh, I asked you if you played NCAA and I think, uh, I think that first night we hung out, we like played NCAA for like, I think like 10 hours and ended up like, uh, <laughs> sounds about right. Talking ball and, you know, basically getting on the sticks for, for all that time. But you know, obviously struck up a huge friendship with you and you, I basically just rode your coattail around from job to job. <laughs> he said <laughs> so, it. I uh, didn't. <laughs> So, I mean, uh, you know, you got me back at Gilroy after, um, you know, some beverages and things and, and, and some convincing, um, you got me back. <laughs> what was the name of the, what was the name of the place that we went out? I mean, it was me. Le Legends. Legend. That's right. Legend. Legends of Morgan Hill. So the story goes, yeah. I told you I was going to jump in. Greg Garcia, who was just hired as the head coach at Gilroy gets me out. We somehow get you out. We get a few adult beverages. We're watching people dance. We're tapping our foot to the beat whatever and then after a, f a few more we end up cornering you in the parking lot in legends and being like so you're gonna coach right right you're gonna coach with us right <laughs> this seems to be a common theme and uh a lot of different stops so it, it ended up being uh 
you know, you basically cornering me and then not taking no for an answer. So, yeah, I was about, about ready to graduate and about ready to wrap up. And uh, I finished up my time at San Jose State. So I jumped back in and took the old line job and then uh, kind of had a rough year that year, kind of um, an up and down year. And uh, I think it was like game seven at the time, right? Yep. Uh, our offense was kind of, you know, having some rough, rough outings and stuff like that. And, and our head coach at the time was calling the offense and was like, Hey man, like, you know, would you want to call the offense this week? And, you know, I think I was like 21, 22 at the time, maybe you know, pretty young in my, my career. I was, uh, you know, never had a coordinating job, never, you know, even, you know, called a run game or, coordinated that you know piece of it but no you were older than that you were we i was because we're the same age you're only like three months younger than me four months younger than me what you were i was 24 24 25 24 yeah 25 24 25 so you you added that part out (laughs) that's all right 25 at the time right so i was 25 at the time and uh you know never really taken uh any type of coordinating role before but I was like, heck, this is, this seems like something I, I don't want to do. So I think it was the night that we talked about it. It was like Saturday night. And I think we went back to your apartment and I believe you chain smoked uh, like four packs of cigarettes as we kind of put together how we we're going to put together an offense. It was a Sunday uh, night because I actually was supposed to sub the next day and I called out as a <laughs> sub and I have that library of books. I have like this bookshelf with all these football books and we started ripping down. I remember I grabbed the John Gruden book. Because I remember there was a section in there on how to make a call sheet. Yeah. And I'm like, I remember right, that I've never done that. this. Let's grab this book. And we away we went. Yeah. It was that book. And I think the Brian Billick book was uh, yeah. the two that we used. And then some Bill Walsh notes. I mean, there was, there was, uh, there was a lot of stuff that we went through that night. You want to talk about the but blind we, leading the blind. Yeah. So we, we definitely put together a good plan. I mean, we, uh, we end up winning our last two league games and uh, squeaked our way into the playoffs. And, uh, you know, we did well. And that was kind of where I first got the, uh, the itch to coordinate. And, um, you know, from there, it was kind of, you know, when it kind of took off for me. Isn't that the year that Vita Vea, that's when Vita Vea broke yeah. our hearts and dreams. Yeah, we barely squeak in the playoffs. We beat our rival. We're four and five. We're four no, we're three, five, one. They're eight and one. And the only reason they really lost was because they went for two when they could have just tied. And we sneak in the playoffs. Vita Vea destroys our life. Remember he had to have that waiver sign. He was a freshman. Yeah. I'm like, he needs to sign a waiver. We need to <laughs> sign a waiver. Cause I'm terrified. We lost like 60. We got just destroyed. We got smoked. We got smoked. Then I player. left. I left you. Yeah. Sorry. I went to yep. Hartnell. And then, uh, yeah, ended up having a pretty rough year that year after. And then, um, you know, head coach ended up resigning that year. And then I ended up taking over the program uh, the following year. And uh, that's going to, when you came back, back in the picture and you wrangled me into coaching uh semi-pro football for the team I used to play for. And, uh, you know, initially wanted no part of it, but you know, then again, you know, <laughs> the story kind of repeats itself and yeah, I ended up doing the same thing. Just doing it, uh, doing what you, what, what, what you had persuaded me to do. And I jumped on board and called the offense and ended up getting a couple of coaches out of, you know, off the staff that ended up, mm-hmm. you know, hiring on uh, to my staff, which was pretty neat. Um, you know, ended up only having one season there, ended up having a pretty rough situation with, you know, with a job on campus and, you know, basically not being able to, you know, financially do it there. And then I kind of had to cut ties 
uh, with my alma mater and, and move on. And for that point, I was going to get out of coaching and, and wasn't really quite sure what I was going to do. And you know, at the time, uh, you had just gotten a job at St. Francis in Mountain well, View. Well, let's, uh, let's back up a step. So I want to interject here. So here's how it goes. Steven is the head coach at Gilroy. This is November of 2011. I'm at Millsaps College. I've spoken about my experience there in the past on the podcast. I was done. I, I hated it. I hated every minute of it. I learned a lot. It was a great experience for me found, you know, for my foundation and and really learning, but I absolutely hated it. And so I was going to come work for you at Gilroy kind of have a homecoming. So it's Friday before our last game. I go into the head. I called you. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go do it. And so I go in there. I resign. I said, you know, after this game, this will be, I'm going to go back. I'm going to move home. And basically I was going to come home. Uh, spend a few months at home in Florida for the holidays. I was going to do some work for my mom's company, or the company she worked for, rather. And then I was going to go back out to California. So I go to resign. I come back and uh, I call you. I'm like, all right, I did it. And you're like, dude, I have bad news. I'm like, wait, what's what's going on? He said, they just fired my offensive coordinator. I'm out of here. I'm like, what? I just resigned my job. What do you talk? What do you mean? You can't leave. And there was a, a, a whole job situation. So then I went home. Like, what the hell am I going to do now? I was half tempted to go back in there, like, psych. Just kidding. I want my job back. But I was like, no, nah, this isn't for me. So I came home to Florida. Then I get the job at St. Francis as the defensive coordinator, which is up the road. And then you were still at Gilroy. And I remember I called you one night and, you know, you were, there was a job situation in there. They couldn't get you on campus. There was another coach that was sick. So they had to give him your job and you were kind of out of a job. And so I called you and we talked for like two and a half hours and I'm hard selling. I'm like, you got to come with me. It's California's weird. Most people wouldn't resign a head coaching position to go coach a another like a be a position coach at another school on a side of the ball they've never coached but california is kind of the wild west so i have like this three-hour conversation with you and i'm like and you're like i don't know man i I don't know i don't know i don't know i don't think so i don't think it's right and i'm like i'm selling hard so i was like i'm gonna call you tomorrow and we'll we'll pick this up so I, i i i call you the next day you pick up the phone and i said all right all right, here, I've thought about this. Here's, you know, here's what I think. And you're like, I'm in. I'm like, so anyway, so, and then I start selling it. You're like, dude, I just said I'm in. Like, it's, it's good. So we go to St. Francis together. I bring you on as my defensive line coach. You didn't even like defense, but you agreed to it. And then we, we finished the year. The head coach resigns. Um, I apply for the job. You apply for the job. And the current head coach applies for the job. They hire him. I'm leave it at that. And so I'd been talking to Sarah and Patrick Walsh and he called me. I called him and said, I'm in. And I remember being like, I'm going to go to Sarah. Like I'm going to get you in somehow. And so I go, I called uh, Patrick. He was at the airport on the way to go to David Bakhtiari's draft party. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm in, I I didn't get the job at at, at St. Francis. I'm in. And he's like, Oh my God, this is the greatest day in the history of Sarah. I'm so excited, blah, blah, blah. I mean, was going nuts in the airport. And he goes, all right, I'm going to David's draft party. I'll be back tomorrow. I'll call you. We'll hit the ground running. Because this is late April, so it's getting close to spring. So you come over to my house with the head coach at St. Francis, the outgoing head coach. There's supposed to be like a 
not a press conference, but a team meeting like three o'clock. So we go to lunch and I don't remember if it was before lunch or after lunch. I get a call from Patrick and I'm like, uh Oh, because he said, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to go to David's draft party. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And he's called me back like three hours later and they were running the flex bone and double wing. And he goes, Oh my God, Vass we're screwed or something. I'm like, what, what, what's going on? I thought like Sarah changed their mind. I'm like, Oh my God, what's going on? And he says, my offensive coordinator just resigned. I guess it was Jose Nuela. Is that his name? Yeah. He had wanted to resign, but he didn't want to leave Patrick high and dry. And now basically, since he said, well, you know, you're going to have Vash, you're going to have your new right hand man. It's time for me to step away. And so Patrick's gutted and I'm freaking elated. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, remember how you said earlier that this is the best day in the history of Sarah? He was like, yeah. He goes, it doesn't feel like it anymore. I said, it certainly is now. I got a guy, Stephen Lowe. He's going to, he'll be running the offense. And I just remember, Patrick must have been like, dude, I just hired you. And now you want me to get somebody else here? Like, what is going on? And so every time we talked for like the next couple of weeks, I just was like, we got to hire Stephen. We got to hire Stephen. We got to hire Stephen. And then what happened? He called you and then interviewed you. Yeah, he had an interview with me, and uh, you know, we ended up uh, talking. Initially, I thought you know he was a, a flex bone guy and a double wing guy. I thought you know he initially wanted to stick with it because you know, he had you know immense amount of success with it, and you know he had kind of been in, in championship games and title hunts for his whole tenure while they were there. So I was like, man, I'm gonna have to start learning the flex bone pretty soon and start learning the double wing because uh, looks like I'm about to jump in and call that offense here if if, if he gives me the nod, but. You know, he, he, he stopped me and, and basically says, you know, I basically want to do three things. You know, I want to be a tempo team. I want to spread it out, but I still want to run the double wing. So I was like, all right, I don't know the double wing, but, you know, the one and two are check and check. So, you know, it, it seemed like a good fit. And then, you know, interview kind of went on and, uh, you know, jumped on the board and kind of, you know, sold the offense and kind of talked about what, you know, my philosophy was. And it, it was it seemed like a good fit. And then I ended up getting the job and you know, the rest was history at that point. I remember Patrick was saying, basically we were our, our, our rival Bellerman had beaten Sarah on the one yard line in two games in one season during the regular season, which we were at that game to scout Sarah and uh, in the playoffs, literally on the one yard line. And he, and I think, I don't know if that was the year. There was another year they threw like three or four passes total the whole playoffs. It was uh, that year. I think they had four passes in the playoffs combined. Yeah. And he said, you know, I need to be able to throw the ball because when we get to the playoffs and we, we want to take the next step, we have to be able, you know, there's always going to be somebody who may be bigger and stronger than you. And so we need something to move the ball quicker. And I knew that he wanted to do defense, knew he wanted to switch to defense, which was, the funny part of the whole story is so I don't know if I've ever told this story, but um, so Nick Navarro was our head. I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> Nick Navarro. No, I've told him this. So I was pissed off at St. Francis. They were telling me, jerking me around on a job. And there's another coach who's kind of famous, who was an alumni working in another school. And I'd come in and the, taking the defense from like giving up 26 a game to 13 a game. The kids loved me. I mean, I, I probably, that was probably the team I was closest to that 2012 team. And I was busting my ass to get a job on campus and rich Hammond. We all go out. I'm sure you remember this rich Hammond, who was both of our bosses at different stop. Well, for me, different stops for you at Gilroy. 
we're, we're at, I think it was BJ's. It was after the semifinal game. And Rich is like, oh, yeah, I was standing next to your AD, uh, Michael Pulowski. And, yeah, he was trying to recruit this other coach and promised him a job and stuff. And I was just like, what did you just say? And this is after they were like, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. I said, what did you say? And he and he's like, yeah, he's telling him, come over here, come coach. We'll get you. We'll guarantee you a job and all this stuff. And here's a guy at another program that, yeah, he was alumni, but, and then they were promising him a job, but the guy that was on their staff was like doing really good things and putting them in a championship game that they haven't been in in 15 years. I lost my mind. So the next day I'm like, Hey Nick, I need Patrick Walsh's phone number because the following week we were going to play a team called Los Gatos. I want to talk to him about, um, defending Los Gatos. And he's like, Oh, okay. Here's his number. Well, that's not why I wanted his number. So Patrick has no idea. I mean, he knew who I was from like coaching and stuff, but so I call him, <laughs> I call him on Saturday night. It was game plan. I was like, Hey, do you know anything about Butch Catalico and Los Gatos? He's like, no, we've never played. I'm like, okay. And I just kept being like, ask me about St. Francis. Ask me about St. Francis. He's like, so how are things in St. Francis? And I'm like, actually, it's funny you asked that. And I go on like this hour tirade about it. I was pretty pissed about not being, you know, for the job, not even being considered or being hemmed and hawed while they were promising jobs to other people. And so Sarah, he, he said, well, we love you at Sarah, but regardless of that, I want you, I want to teach you the defense or I want you to teach me your defense. And I said, just one thing, I'm not going to teach you what we do versus you. So he marches me down to Sarah. It's like two weeks. We end up winning the championship, shut out uh, Gatos. Two weeks after I'm at Sarah and he like paraded me around. <laughs> I met the principal. I met the president, all this stuff. So I start teaching the defense and I remember coming back and I'm like, dude, this guy's awesome. He, I had him come to St. Francis one time. He like marched right through campus and everybody's like, what's the head coach of Sarah doing here? It was wild. I was a, I was kind of an idiot, but uh, ended up working out. So Patrick hires us. We go over there. We win the section title in our first year. We took an offense that was the flex bone and the double wing exclusively. We kept the double wing. I think we did it less than he had done the year before. But we could switch to a passing offense. You did a fantastic job. We spent five years together. I think we hung more banners in that five-year period than the school had hung in the rest of the history of the school or something like that, right? Yeah, it was, it was a pretty solid run. We had, what, we hung 10 banners in five years? Something crazy, something yeah. insane. And I remember, um, and obviously I loved, you know, you were the OC, I was the DC. What a hell of a staff that was. And uh, you and I went out for, um, we had a, we had a, <laughs> this is kind of, dicky but we had a uh what's the word a tradition for when we won section titles and we would get pie and you would come over my house and we would eat this gross miss from cl- clam jumpers i always used to call it anything was clam jumper and we had this nasty like it was delicious but it was like you looked at it and you're like mm, diabetes and but because we won a state title we're like we got to do it up so we go to this brazilian steakhouse which was literally a hundred yards from my front door. And we went out for our pie afterwards. And I remember looking at you and going, so do you think we'll ever be as, do you remember this conversation? You go, do you think we'll ever be as good as we were? And you're like, no, like completely matter of fact. And I was like, what do you mean? Like we have no shot. And you're like, no, I don't think that, you know, 
I mean, where do you go from here? And I was just like, oh my God. And I was kind of stressed out about, you know, living in the Bay Area. I loved working at Sarah. I loved working for Patrick at, at his company. Uh, but I was just, I was bleeding money. And I was like, man, maybe I need to move on. You know, I've done what I wanted to do. And then um, I was just thinking a lot. And so I came home. I think, I think I left the next day. I think that's why we were in such a hurry to get it going because I left either the next day or the day after and I come home and I'm here with my mom thawing out from the season. I mean, our, our game was on like December 17th was the week before Christmas Eve and my buddy, Chris King and I are on the phone and he says, man, we just lost our offensive coordinator. And I just flippantly said, well, you should hire our guy at Sarah. And he's like, okay. And then I'll let you pick it up from here. I, I remember calling you and you being apprehensive. And I remember, I think I like yelled at you. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> this, you need to take this job. Well, just because I knew that you wanted to like start a fit. And we both had, we're both late 20s in the Bay Area, barely making it financial. I mean, you know, I mean, we all know the stories about the Bay Area prices, but you were like, I want to have a family. I want to buy a house. And I'm like, dude, you're not going to be able to do that. And you knew that. I mean, you, we've talked about yeah. that ad nauseum. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was that was the toughest part, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I love my time at Sarah and, and, and just working for Patrick and, and just the type of leader he is and the type of program he had. I mean, it, it was a dream working for him. And I love my job on campus and the kids were great and it was a really good fit. And, you know, we were playing, you know, really really high level of football and having a lot of fun with that and everything and um i was happy i was i was i was content with where i was and you know really happy with uh you know my job and coaching and it was really in a good place the only thing was just i was literally working i think seven days a week for like 10 months out of the year you know just breaking my back just to literally be working poor and just to scrape scrape the bucket to try to just you know figure a way to make it to the, the end meet and, um, you know, initially I, 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 I didn't think I, my, my, my wife at the time wanted to go, um, you know, she was you know, a homebody and, and somebody that loves, you know, being in the Bay area and being close to family that was a huge thing for her. So initially it wasn't really something that we were thinking about doing. Um, and then you yelled at me basically, and went, you need to do this because this doesn't come knocking all the time. And, you know, initially I was like, I knew about the program. I knew, you know, how, how much success and, you know, Jason had with with the program at Bosco and you know the the players and, and the league and all the stuff that that's you know that is in the Trinity League and on the schedule that they play on a yearly basis. So you know I was like, all right, let's let's just make a call and we'll see what happens. So I'm calling Jason and have a conversation with him and we had, we just so happened to be uh, down in Southern California. Um, you know, basically every single year I'd take Christina uh, away for you know, a weekend or a week long trip to get away from football. And, um, so this time around, I was like, yeah, I know we're about to get away from football, but, uh, there's this thing that comes up that just came up right now that, that doesn't necessarily always come up all the time. I mean, uh, uh they, they want to potentially have a conversation and potentially interview, interview me for this, uh, offense coordinator quarterback job and strength job. I mean, um, the, the, the fit was basically, I mean, I, I checked all those boxes off that they were looking for. So, you know, initially thought it was a long shot and kind of just, all right, I figured just have a conversation and see, you know, where it'd go from there. And, you know, after the first conversation, I was like, wow, this is, this is, this could happen. This is, this is definitely happen. I mean, this is a, 
a really good fit. Uh, I love the staff that I just, I just met with. I met with, you know, Chris King and, and Jason Negro and uh, the old line coach, Jimmy Adams. And, uh, you know, we, we literally sat and talked ball for about two hours and talked philosophy and put some stuff on the board and kind of talked through scenarios and things like that. And I was like, wow, this is, this is a unique, unique you know situation, unique place to be. And, you know, initially after getting screamed out by you, I was like, all right, I think you're right. I, think I, need, to, <laughs> I need to do this. <laughs> so, you know, I ended up uh, getting the job in 18 and, um, you know, just so happened to walk into probably one of the best situations and one of the best jobs in America. I mean, literally had the number one quarterback in the class and a ton of talent around them and, you know, a really, really solid structure and everything around and, you know, was able to, to run with it and have some good success these past couple of years. And you know, definitely have had a good run during my time down here. So let's recap this. So I talked to you going, I talked you into going back to Gilroy or I talked to you about really to get back into coaching vis-a-vis Gilroy. Yeah. I talked to you into the central coast barnstormers, the number one semi-pro team in the country. That's right. I yeah. talked you into coming to St. Francis. I talked you into coming to Sarah. And then I talked you into, well, I didn't, I mean, I didn't talk you into taking the Bosco job, but I, I think I pretty much talked you into doing the interview at least. Yeah. Um, I think you're unofficially my agent. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering why your son's name is not Christopher, but that's, you know, we could talk about that off air, but yeah. Uh, it's James. He, he has, he has your middle name. That's right. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I remember uh, I got in an argument with a joke argument with your, uh, Will Lawrence, your best man in the wedding. And on, on Facebook, he's like, oh, I, that room better be ready for me. I'm like, ready for you? Ready for <laughs> you? Are you are you shitting me? Ready for you? Uh, no, no, not you, me. But uh, no, it's... Um, and then we really... I owe a thanks to James Light because James is the one that introduced me and Chris. And then, you know, we became friendly and talking. But I, it's funny. I look back on that. I didn't really know Chris all that well. I never met him before. And I was like, here, you should interview our offensive coordinator. I just knew, I knew that it was time for me to move on. And, and, and I miss, and Patrick, if you listen to this, I love you. I love Sarah. I love the Bay Area. Every time it gets above 80 degrees here in Orlando, which is pretty much every day, I just long for the San Mateo breeze. But I knew it was time for me to move on. I knew it was time for you to move on in terms of, wanting to, the things that you couldn't have in the Bay area or you could, but you'd have to live so far away. I mean, what you left out of the story is the commutes, man. The commute was like an hour and a half yeah. when you, to, to live anywhere worth anything. You know, you're talking about an hour and a half commute and it just wasn't going to work. It's, hour, like, it's yeah. just, it's just it's about an hour and a half for 30 miles. Yeah. One way. And, yeah. and it was just yeah, like, one way. And God, I love that area. And I think about it all the time, but it, it, and then I ended up leaving. And I think what ended up happening was subconsciously, I knew that I needed to leave, but I wouldn't leave if you were there. Cause I felt bad. I I'd felt guilty about, you know, I talk you into going to Gilroy, you come back a year later, I'm out. Not even a year. It was, I decided to leave. Greg and I had that infamous meeting on Valentine's day. And I, that night I was like, yeah, I'm out of here. Um, I I have this thing about where I resign without having a job. <laughs> it's one of my neat tricks that I do. 
and I resigned. I resigned from Gilroy without a job and ended up coaching at Hartnell. So I left you behind, and it was it was not a good year, not even the record, but just it was just it was tough. And um, you know, I felt bad about that, and I didn't want to leave you again. And and just it, it it was comfortable, you know. I had the job. It was tough to change. I had I had never worked at the same place for two years besides Gilroy. I'd been bouncing around. You know, I, I just finished year five at Sarah, which blew by so fast. And I was just like, it's time to go. I knew I needed to go for adult reasons. You know, you wanted to have a family and get a house. I wanted to start say, you know, I didn't have any retirement. I was a 1099 independent contractor. No retirement saved, no money to show. I mean, at the end of every month, I was literally, there were some months, you know, with a week to go, I had like $12 in my bank account. I mean, it was, and it was like every month. Because it was impossible to save any money. And, you know, my apartment was like nineteen twenty-five, And that was the sweetest deal you could get in San Mateo County. <laughs> and I lived in a 650-foot apartment, square-foot apartment, next to a train and a bar called Steamies. You can imagine how fun that was. <laughs> um, you know, which I guess is not as bad as San Mateo's finest Bucky's. But, you know, <laughs> it just, it was, I couldn't do it anymore. And so I went to Clovis and... The one thing I will say about Sarah is I totally under, I knew Sarah was great. I knew Patrick was a great leader. And the great thing about Sarah and the experience I had was, you know, a lot of those coaches there, they were, you know, it was a private school. Everybody was off campus besides you and the freshman head coach, I believe. And I think the JV offensive coordinator, Perry, um, so you had guys that were sacrificing time and money to get off work early to come to Sarah. And I think it's when you when you volunteer and you're an off-campus guy, I think there's a there's a different vibe. You know, a lot of guys, when I went to Clovis, a lot of the guys would they'd be on campus, they'd change their clothes and they'd roll out to the field where, you know, for guys like Lyndon McGee, who's my safeties coach, he would come and it would be like his refuge. He he could get away from work and I think it's just a different thing. And so you had a bunch of assistants who did not want to be coordinators or head coach. You had two coordinators and myself and you that did not want to be head coaches. You had a head coach that was absolutely phenomenal. And you saw that with the let's play California thing, like how people rallied around it. But anyway, um, I underestimated that experience and not that I underestimated the experience. I just thought it would be everywhere like that. And then I found out very quickly it's not. And, you know, I went my own way. You went your own way. And it was tough. But I think it was one of those things like I had to get you out of there or else I wasn't going to leave. And I knew I needed to leave. And I knew that you needed to leave for your own. Like you were much happier. I mean, I, I was struggling financially. You were not. I mean, you were, but you weren't. You weren't struggling day to day. It was like, if I wanted my future, if I want to have this child, if I want to have a house, I got to get out of here. Mine was, if I want to have my sanity for next month, I need to get the hell out of here. And, you know, and so we went our separate ways and you've been killing it ever since. So apologies to normal podcast listeners. You know, my intro usually <laughs> is two minutes um, and then we get into it. But I'm going to have my best friend on with a lot of shared experiences. We're going to talk. We're going to talk a little we're going to tell little stories, which is why I have the show notes. You can always just skip this part. I wouldn't advise it, but it's there. Anyway, all right, let's talk some football. Offensive philosophy. In a nutshell, 
Give us your current offensive construction. What are your main personnel groups? What are your top runs? What are your top passing concepts? Like when you turn on the tape for St. John Bosco, what what are people going to see? I mean, you're going to see um, you know, a mixture of everything from, you know, 10, 20, 11, uh, some 12 personnel, um, you know, spread concepts where, um, you know, it's, it has a power and downhill element, but we're also trying to stretch the field vertically and horizontally. Um, you know, my, my number one goal is to try to threaten every blade of grass and try to make you defend uh, every piece of it and try to put some people in conflict. <laughs> but, uh, oh, you know, boy. definitely try to, you know, <laughs> put some people in some one-on-one situations is really what we're looking to do. I mean, if we can do that, we feel really good about our, our, our chances to, you know, win a majority of those battles and, and to, you know, highlight and showcase our guys' skill sets. I mean, I'm very, very blessed to be where I'm at, and I'm surrounded by a lot of very, very talented individuals who have uh, very, very explosive and unique skill sets. And, um, you know, it, it, it affords me the ability to go out there and, you know, be pretty creative and have a lot of fun and, you know, utilize their strengths to, to build packages and build, you know, schemes that, you know, give, you know, opponents, you know, some structural, you know, issues that to kind of solve from, and, and problem solve through and, you know, puts our guys in the best situations to do what they do best. So um, top run schemes, uh, we're, we're a gap scheme, heavy team, and, and an inside and outside zone team. Um, you know, top passing concepts, you know, we're, we're heavy in the verticals game. You know, I'm, I'm a big, big, big believer in just um, being able to use four verticals and have answers within that to kind of start a, a, a home base to throw from. And then using the tag system and using, you know, um, different switch releases and formations and motions, uh, be able to get into a lot of different looks while not changing the reads or, um, you know, what a quarterback has to do. I'm trying to make things as simple as possible, you know, for that person, you know, that's taking the snaps, you know, behind center and also trying to make it as simple for the guys up front um, as much as possible. Because I feel like if you can have a simple set of rules for your guys up front and you can be as consistent as possible for your quarterback week in and week out. Those are the guys that have to deal with the most amount of, uh, you know, stress from week in week out basis from a schematic standpoint of, you know, the fronts and blitzes and then, you know, obviously the coverages and the protection and stuff, you know, from the quarterback position. So that's kind of where we are in a nutshell. Do you think your love of throwing verticals goes back to our time of doing one-on-ones in <laughs> NCAA. So what was it? One night you came over and we were playing. So the story is when we played NCAA, we started playing in like 08, 09. And I would say it was 50, 50. I think I might've been a little, and I'm saying a tiny bit better because I was playing more at the time. And then I didn't play for a while, but you learned like at that time you were mostly an O-line guy that knew a little bit about the passing game. And then you went and learned how to play, which is amazing to me. So, so Steven, I'll brag on him. So coach Lowe is, and he gets named the offensive coordinator at the tail end of Oh nine. I, like you said, I think it was game seven going into, was it game seven or going into game eight? I think it was going into game eight. So we had three games, yeah. then a playoff game. So you're a coordinator for four games in the middle of the year with no prep. You were just the O-line coach. And I know you had, it gave a lot of ideas and things, but you were not the quarterback coach. You teach yourself in the offseason how to coach quarterbacks. You dominate the section in passing. 
you're high, very high ranked in the state and you are a let's run the ball. And I mean, again, you coaching some spread offenses with coach Hammond that threw the ball a lot, but you were, you were an O-line guy and you taught yourself how to coach quarterbacks. It was unbelievable. Um, and that's why I had no, you had, you didn't know anything about D line play at the time when I hired you at St. Francis, but I, I was like, and, and you said that to me, like, I don't know anything about D line play. I'm like, you didn't know anything about quarterbacks either. And you led the freaking world in passing. So I'm pretty sure you can figure out D line play. You know, and then, I mean, hell, you ended up coordinating a defense in the middle of the year. Uh, I, like, taught you some option defense on the phone, and you, like, stuffed the other team's run game. I mean, it's, I knew that wasn't going to be an issue of you learning D-line play, but this incredible job of of taking something that you didn't know and learning it inside and out, and not only being able to learn it, but then to turn around and be able to teach it, which is incredibly difficult. So, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a fun journey watching you, you know, as a close friend of yours, watching you progress now. So you mentioned you're a big gap scheme. You guys run a lot of gap schemes now. Now, when we were together at Sarah, we were primarily zone. What made you change that? Uh, well, just the, the availability of tight ends because uh, I didn't have a defense corner taking every single tight end fullback body away from me every single year. I don't year, know what so you're talking about, sir. That definitely changed. <laughs> I don't know what I you're mean, talking I about. I, I'd always love to run gap schemes, but it was really, really, really odd that every time at Sarah, you know, I'd have a tight end body, but ooh, he looks like a tight end. And all of a sudden, you know, he would, he would talk to this, this DC and all of a sudden he would turn into a D end or yeah. a middle backer or mm-hmm. a, yeah, you know, that's right. A safety or something like that. So, I was very it, it was gracious weird. as a friend getting you the job at Sarah, and I didn't <laughs> remind you of it very much. But I did remind <laughs> it to you. I did remind you of that every chance I could get when we would talk about splitting up bodies. So that was the thing. Very convenient. So Patrick was a defensive guy, and he says, "I will always give you everything first. I'm like, "Okay." I said, "Are you sure?" He goes, "Whatever it takes to win, I'll give you." I said, "Okay." He basically said, I get pick number one and pick number two, and then you get basically pick, uh, I think, three through, like, 14 or whatever it was. So I, I get I get, to, I get to pick a quarterback and a left tackle, and then you basically got to draft the rest of your team, That's and then right. I got to basically form whatever's left. It, well, until it came – well, that's not true. Until it came to corners. So then I got to pick so – basically how it worked was I got to pick until – I got pit the next nine picks. So I usually say, cause we were in a run league. So I would save my picks or I would draft everything but corners. And then and this is, li- I mean, we're half kidding, half serious. We did literally pick it like this, but this is how it kind of laid out. And then like the receivers left over, I would take and teach them how to play corner. Cause Patrick's like, Oh, you just put an athlete out there. I'm like, Nope, that's more than that. Like, <laughs> um, and, and I was much like very much into the whole Pratt, you know, playing off, not, off coverage but like playing a lot more zone stuff when patrick was there and the d's well when patrick was the dc they played a lot of press and bail which is easier which we did a lot of that too but i required more stuff in my corners and i'm like no we can't just put our quarterback out there with a half a practice of training and he can go play corner like i was always like anti that but yeah so i would remind steven how he got the job and how he was at sarah and then that would i would get whatever i wanted and i wasn't above that i wasn't above busting that out the fu- 
<laughs> the funniest part was my assistants were always, we had an open door policy. If you have an idea, no matter how crazy it is, because God knows I've come up with some crazy ones. Uh, see defending the double wing, why running the double wing. I'll tell that story another day. But uh, I, you know, would give open in, you know, advice, open door policy until it came to when we would sit down to do splitting personnel. And my thing was don't talk or don't speak unless spoken to because I knew what I wanted. And so we would talk about player personnel picks and stuff. But when we got in the room and we were hashing it out, I'm like, don't say a freaking word. I do the talking on this part. Because, you know, I knew what I wanted. And then I, w- I would take a guy and he'd be like, oh, shucks, you know, maybe you could have him. Like, I would be like, offer the olive branch and then I would buy in your back steal the guys I really wanted. Yeah, I was ruthless. It's okay. <laughs> but then what is, so what? So what's the difference? Because Bosco, your platoon, does Chris not, does Chris not get his pick of the litter? Or is he nicer than I was? Like, how, how does he not get all the tight ends? Or do you just have like a bunch of them walking around? It, there's there's a, there's a fair amount of guys walking around. So I mean, we're like you said, we, we we're a destination school that has you know a lot of kids that want to come play for us, and you know we're able to kind of you know find a lot of roles for guys that you know are those you know hybrid, really good athletes out in space, but also can get in line and you know and block. They can they can play a sniffer position and and move around the in, in the backfield. So I mean, we want to utilize that, especially you know this past, you know, three-year run, we, we've had some good ones, uh, you know, at the tight end spot, and we're able to throw them in there and incorporate them into our game plan. So, you know, definitely use it because you know, I feel with, you know, the RPO game and the ability to, to option and run around a little bit, um, you know, we, we can definitely help to take care uh, and have some pretty unique situations to cover our gaps on the backside and give a lot of different things to present that a defense has to go, you know, play. It's not just always, you know, a C gap read where, you know, we're optioning off and you can't just automatically, you know, set certain fronts or stunts or, or, or different, you know, games and stuff to take where option game. That's the greatest description of a private school I've ever heard. It's a destination school. That's fantastic. So you, you've gotten more in the gap schemes because of the personnel. Now, besides the vertical concepts, what are some of your other favorite passes in terms of uh, concepts? What, what are your other concepts? Are you throwing as many screens as you used to on the outside? Where, where have you evolved in the passing game? Um, you know, we, we, we live pretty um, heavily off our smash package and primarily the stuff that we do off the backside of our smash package. So, you know, between having, you know, basically a three vertical type package, um, you know, we, we run basically cross, like wide cross off of it. I mean, a lot of stuff kind of gets tagged on the backside of that where, you know, we're, we're trying to basically have, you know, all weather, you know, I, I joke with, with that good versus everything concepts. Oh, no, not <laughs> but, good versus everything. No. <laughs> but just, just try to build in answers versus, you know, middle field open and close and, and also, you know, man looks. So, you know, no matter what coverages people are disguising or rolling or, or, or trying to, you know, get in and out of zone or man, you know, we, we have the ability to, to the point where I don't have to call a perfect play. It's we, we build the rules in and let our quarterback get us into the best possible part of the play. That's going to go and highlight what we're trying to attack in the defense. 
so it's really hard to you know to try to get a perfect play call and, and to get it at the right moment you just miss opportunities whereas you know when you get your quarterback to understand coverages and you know how to read post snap movement uh you know you, you can get him to basically fix you and and get you in the right play yeah i walk in one day we're at saint francis and uh I want to tell the story. I didn't. I didn't even tell you. I didn't even tell the best. Probably the best part of the whole story about Sarah. So, real quick sidebar. So we're going to play Sarah. They're four and five. We're uh, no. We're four and five. They're eight and one. And of, like we mentioned, they ran the flex bone in the double wing. And Stephen obviously is an offensive guy through and through, as you can probably tell. Um, he may or may not have fallen asleep in a few of the defensive meetings, um, especially <laughs> during the summer when I had these like grueling sessions. Uh, you know, so when Nick would come in, Nick Navarro being our head coach, they he would sit and geek out with Nick, and I would just sit there like staring at the wall, being like, "You guys shut up!" But uh, in all seriousness, I remember there was one day they come in, and I walk in into my part of the office, which was really three quarters of the office. And um, <laughs> they're talking about this play. Oh yeah. This place good versus everything. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah this place good. I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I'm tired of this shit. Cause everything is we, and they're like snap. I'm like, I'm tired of you guys saying good versus everything. There's no such thing. So that became the running joke. But the part of the story with Sarah, which is mind blowing is, so we're going to play Sarah. And my goal selfishly coming into the league was I wanted to be the number one defense in the league, right? Well, it's a good goal to have, right? So we thought we were going to get destroyed by Sarah. In fact, we're doing the math in the parking lot before we leave. The, all right, we're, we're, we, we got a 21-point lead. Bellerman was playing Reardon. Reardon wasn't very good. I can remember this like it was yesterday. We used to have a little spot that we would sneak off to to do some deep deep thinking. I'll leave it at that. And um, I'm like, all right, we got, we can only give up 21. If we start to give up 21, we got to hope that Reardon scores some points and some garbage time, blah, 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 blah. Thinking we're going to get curb stomps the day of the game. But Monday, I think it was Monday or Sunday. I want to say it was Monday of that week. We had the Monday off for whatever reason. Maybe it was Veterans Day or whatever. And so we're off from school. So our head coach, Nick Navarro, is sick as a dog. I mean, he's like. We had a little mini couch in the back part of where I used to hang out. Nick is down for the count, like can't move. And you hadn't come in yet. And you had always joked with me about the meetings and, and stuff and being like, I feel like I don't bring any value to these meetings because I don't know anything about this crap. You know, literally the game planning meetings would be me, you and Anthony Byers sitting around and I would just talk out loud. It was like a, a babbling, you know, babbling kids that just talk to themselves and they're like in their own little world. That's what I felt like. And mommy and daddy just looked at me and was like, yes, Christopher, that's very good of you. Yes. Um, but <laughs> so I remember Nick laying on the ground. I'm sitting or laying on the couch. I'm sitting at the computer and he goes, oh, my God, I just wish somebody could just do this game planning for me. I can't think straight. And I turned around. I was like, well, I know a guy who can game plan for you. And he's like, who? <laughs> I was like, uh, Stephen Lowe could game plan for us. And because Sarah played a lot of man that year, I knew that you would have a lot of creative. We did some very creative things back with Rich Hammond at Gilroy. We had a formation, I think uh, you guys say we, I wasn't even there yet, called Beatbox, where guys would like line up literally however they wanted, like facing each other, like stuff they ended up outlawing because it was 
so crazy, but I knew you'd have some good ideas. I was like, why don't you do this? Why don't you have low do the offensive game plan? You're sick as shit. You could sit in here with me and help me game plan the triple. Cause Nick was a defensive guy too at heart who converted to offense later on in life. Like, why not we do that? He was like, that's a really good idea. So like Steve walks in, I'm like, I got some good news for you. And you were like, yes. And you grabbed some paper and you just like left for five hours. I took off. The the fastest way to get out of there was too slow. You couldn't get out of there fast enough. So Nick, here I am sitting like freaking out about the flex bone. And when I, the flex bone I went too worried about was the double wing was having meltdowns. So, Cut to another story. All offseason, like, I remember we we had themed weeks where we talked about teams we were going to play, and two of our biggest rivals ran the double wing. Under center, foot to foot, double tight, double wing. And I literally came up with 30 different defenses. Not come up with, but talk to guys and, and call guys around. And, I mean, I called everybody and had all these different ideas. In fact, one day I snapped, and I, as I mentioned earlier, we even told Nick we were going to run the double wing on defense. So when he does the Spider-Man motion, I do the <laughs> Spider-Man motion. He spins, I spin. We were like down block, the down blocker. He pulls, I pull. I mean, it was just insane. In fact, it was uh, Steve drew the play <laughs> that I drew up on the board in, uh, when he gave me a card for being a groomsman at his wedding. But um, so Steve just leaves. And, and I'm there with Nick who's like dying on the couch. I'm freaking out like, oh, my God, we're going to get destroyed. So Steve comes back like, and cause we hadn't used wristbands that year. Right. He was all signals. No. Yeah. No, he was wristbands. He was wristbands. Oh, he was wristbands. Okay. But so we yeah. had the wristbands, So we were able to do this and Steve took our passing plays that we had and like modified them out of all these crazy formations. So we go down to Sarah, go up to Sarah. We shut him out. I mean, it was their senior day. They're eight and one. We're four and five. I'm thinking we're going to get boat raced. I'm having my typical defensive meltdown. Lowe's loving life. He's like, I don't have to deal with this shit this week. Um, I'm like, but now I'm like by myself with buyers being like, what are we going to do? Um, and it was like, Steve, just coach individual. I'll handle the rest. And um, we end up scoring a lot of well i mean 24 points but what I, what I thought we were going to do originally was not 24 points and definitely went zero and that's how we ended up getting on patrick's radar and get the job and everything i don't even know where the hell i was going with this story but uh there's, there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a lot of that in this podcast right here yeah this is <laughs> this is in the mind of one chris vassar greg jemmings uh i don't know i'll have to go back when i edit and figure out where we're going with the story but anyway so that's how Steve gets on the radar. That's what starts this whole thing. But talking about your philosophy and where you came from, you know, when you first started coaching at Gilroy, you guys were, when you played and when you first coached, I think you coached freshman first. Yeah. They're right. We were a two back. Well, I say, I keep saying we, I was not there yet. I, I was still in, I was a college student in, in Miami, not thinking I was going to move to California. You guys were like a two-back fly sweep team, right? Yep. So you're, you're with us, you're with Darren Yaffe and uh, Tim Paraleone, who end up going to Christopher High School across the street uh, years later. So you are with Rich. He comes in. He was a 50 defense guy, ran the fly. Did he do it the first year and have mixed results and then switch, or did he come and switch to the air raid his first year? No, we were like a combination of like wing T and 
like fly. That was a combination of that the first year. And, and then 06, we had right? all these, yeah. And then we had all these young, young, like backs receivers, like these guys that just were really good space. And that was kind of what initiated, um, you know, Rich's research and figuring out how we can get all these kids on the, on the field at the same time, how we can get them all the ball. Cause it's like, you know, we, we didn't just want to hand them off because they were pretty dynamic in space. And we felt like there's gotta be some way where we can get the spread or elements of the spread here. So we ended up taking a trip out to Arizona and, and um, it was when Sonny Dykes was there. And I mean, that was like Gronk was there. Uh, they had a couple other like pretty good quarterback there at the time. And they they were shredding it up in, in the pac 10 at the time. And um, so we studied them and uh, you know, Rich brought a lot of the stuff, you know, which was basically like, it, it was like literally watching like a spaceship land in the area. Cause there's, there's nothing like it in the area at the time. And this is like, mid 2000s but they'd still primarily been like option offenses i mean we're seeing the wishbone um flexbone wingty i mean it was pretty you know you know older older run run based offenses so you know defensively that that's kind of what everyone's geared towards and you know when all of a sudden we started jumping in 10 personnel and crazy formations with motions and you know different shift packages every single week it, it threw everyone for a loop and we we were taking you know, huge, huge, huge outings because, you know, people had no clue how to defend it because it was so foreign from, we were contrarian at the time. So, you know, we right. were able to take a lot of those concepts and just basically just shred people with it because it was so, so novel at the time. In yeah. That, in that space anyways. What was that? What was the lady at the bar you guys went to in your Arizona that Greg always talked about? What was her name? Like Diesel or some shit? Oh, no. What was, what her, was name? her name? Fever. Fever. <laughs> fever. Fever. <laughs> and fever. Yeah, I love that story. Yeah. Um, I believe I believe she had at all points in time a lit cigarette, and I think she had a pint of uh, a pint of beer out of in her hand at all points in time. And she had more cigarettes in her hand than teeth. Yes. So <laughs> you, <laughs> I I just remembered the fever story, and I just also remembered the story about Joe in Hawaii, which. We'll tell off pod um, where he loses his clothes or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> so you go, you're running the air raid, uh, have a lot of success at Gilroy offensively. Um, end up getting a section final in 2007 and 2008. You that's when you left. And then yep. actually that's, that was the year we got knocked out of the playoffs. We were like 10th in the state at one point. We get knocked out of the playoffs by Patrick. I was like 24, 25. No, I, yeah, I was 24 at the time, and um, I tried to stop the flex bone, didn't work. And that's what led me to that crazy option defense that I ended up pulling out on Patrick four years later. Um, and then we had played Hollister the year after, and we'd, we'd uh, ran that. That's how we won that game where we were talking about where we had to play Vita Vea. So you're still doing the air. So you come back, you, you, we do the air raid again because Greg Garcia, who was took over for rich Hammond also was on that staff. He was the one hanging out with fever, I think. So yeah, in 07, you and you and Greg were on the staff. Greg was the DC. He leaves. I come in and take over for him. Then he comes back. Rich leaves. He becomes the head coach in 09. We get you to come back. You guys still run the air raid because Greg recruited me to do the semi-pro a couple years before I talked you into it. 
Um, you guys were still doing the wristbands and the air raid. So you do that in 09, then I leave. And then in 10, you were still doing the air raid. You hit a bumpy patch. I think you guys tried to run the single wing. And then you took over again in 11. You had Fennel. Uh, you also ran the air raid. Um, we go to St. Francis 13. We start at Sarah and you were running the air raid, but you knew. I remember the one thing that Patrick was very adamant about was being able to run the option. That was something he wanted part of the game. And I don't think you had been a big zone read. I think you had done some of it, but I don't think you were as much of an option guy as when we got to Sarah and Patrick's like, listen, I went to Dale Sal. We ran the split back veer. I believe in option football. I want to have option. And so I think you started incorporating that. But you were still air raid based in 13 and 14, right? It wasn't until was it was I went to Texas and got that Baylor film. Was that when kind of the shift happened? Yeah, I was like 14 and 15 is when we transitioned to some of the Baylor stuff where we were we were starting to mess with our receiver splits and open guys up and start to get some you know vertical you know opportunities with you know the spacing there and work all the work all the fast rings with like the super expanded splits and and stuff with the receivers and just it gave us really really easy clean boxes and gave us a really really easy shot to either you know overload people to the point of attack and you know, out there in the perimeter or, or to get people in isolated one-on-one situations to take vertical shots on them. So it was a really simple plan. We had a really mobile quarterback at the time. And, you know, that plus one in the box is always really nice, you know, with, with everyone having to worry about the perimeter screens and the vertical balls, you know, it, it was a really simple game plan because what are you going to take away? You know, if you're going to pack people in the box, you'll, you'll be weak either deep or in the perimeter. And if you're going to honor that stuff, then, you know, our quarterbacks are going to go run all over you. So, it was an initially a really, really good fit for us. So that's initially why we kind of moved, you know, to, to that attack. But then as our quarterback, you know, the next quarterback we had was, you know, probably one of the most prolific passers in Sarah history. Um, we had him, we kind of shifted back to a little bit of the balance of some area concepts, but then still kind of being, you know, having a downhill run attack at the same time. So I've kind of, I've kind of always, blended you know ideas and, and, and philosophies I, I just don't you know offensively anyways it's just that I don't feel like there's one necessary you know one necessary one way to, to get something done I think um you know I, I think for me it always it's always been like what do we have what do they do well and then build backwards from there I think it always starts with you know your personnel first and then you know how can you get those guys on the field and then what concepts fit what they do well so for me I've never really been married to like one you know offensive scheme or philosophy and I, I just feel like there's too many ways to do things as long as you build something that fits and you know you're going to build tendencies and you're going to have things that are going to break those tendencies and you know be constraint plays within you know your offense to hold people honest um, as long as you have those guardrails in you know you can build something that's pretty unique for the situation in that place in time and, and that's why I think you know I'm always constantly trying to learn and constantly trying to to evolve because you know, every single year is a different year. And, you know, even, even being at Bosco from one year to the next, I mean, I went from having, you know, DJ for two years, you know, who, who can literally, you know, put a ball anywhere you want, uh, you know, any given time to, you know, two quarterback system with two guys splitting the role this year. And each of the guys brought a unique skill set that was different from each other and also different from DJ too, as well. So, you know, for me to try to fit, you know, one offensive, philosophy you know 
for each of the kids. Yeah, you can't do that. I feel like you have to start with them first and have that open conversation and figure out what they're comfortable doing and, you know, what they love doing and kind of what fits their skill set and, and build from there. Now, I remember having those conversations with you when I came back from Texas and had that hard drive of all that Baylor film. Um, and I remember the conversations that we had. There was an issue where we had the mobile quarterback we were talking about. And we had uh, Hunter Bishop, who ended up, I think, going 10th overall in the Major League Baseball draft. I don't know if it was last year or two years yeah. ago. And the skill sets. And I remember the conversation about the drop back passing game. You, I was like, why don't you want to do this, use this quarterback or do this? And, I, and you said, well, my drop back concepts. And I said, well, what are your drop back concepts? I remember that. Con- I remember exactly where I was standing. Yeah. We were on the phone. But what moment did you realize that? you needed to get away from the pure air raid. What was the, what was kind of the turning point? We're like, all right, I need to reframe this stuff. Like what, what made you kind of turn? What was, was there a moment or anything that happened? Uh, I think for me, it was always kind of, um, it was always having a disconnect with the run game was where I felt like, um, yeah, I love, I love the way they already practice. I love, you know, the, you know, the pat and go Ralph on air and the way they, they repped, uh, you know, the same plays over and over and over again. And, and the philosophy is really, really unique in that sense. Um, but it was always the run game that was kind of lacking for me and something I was always kind of looking for something more and, and something that was a little more um, to fit my style. And, and I still wanted to, you know, line up and being an old line guy still at heart, you know, I still want to line up and see off on people and, you know, running, running track outside zone and, you know, or, or wide zone and, and running inside zone, you know, exclusively as your run package, you know, it wasn't really, it didn't really fit my style. So I think that initially was one of the first things that kind of drew me to looking in some other places and kind of finding, you know, some of the Baylor stuff and taking a look at their, you know, their downhill run game with, with, with the splits of the receivers and everything they were doing. I mean, I was watching Bowling Green, I think, like they, they had like one or two explosive years of like yeah pretty unique stuff. I think Dino Babers was there doing yep. some pretty fun, unique things. That was one of my favorite offenses, I think, still to this day. Like what, how they used, you know, the the spacing of, of of everything there and having that spread idea, but also with a power element. So that always to me kind of felt like you have a little bit of answers for everything. So you know, if if you need to get downhill, you have a way to do that. You know, if you want to get people out in space and, and, you know, get your, get your athletes the ball with extended handoffs, you can do that. And you can also stretch the field, you know, vertically too, as well. And that, 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 that really intrigued me. And I always kind of fit my philosophy of wanting to, you know, have that downhill attack, but also be able to threaten sideline to sideline and vertically down the field. So I think that's initially where. I saw that, and I think the hang-up initially was I loved mesh so much at the time. <laughs> mesh had been yeah. so good for us. It had been so good for us in like the the mid two thousands that it, it you know it was hard saying goodbye to an old friend, but um, you know finally we, we had to pack it away because you know we kind of used it less and less as the years went on, and um, you know we, we kind of were repping a lot, and you know mesh is an expensive concept when you teach it with you know the the, the reading and sitting down and you know. The, the weaving through traffic and having to figure out, you know, manners own and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty labor intensive and expensive of play. If you, if you do it with all the, you know, full, all, you know, the full package in there. 
So, uh, you know, finally ended up having to put that old, uh, old friend to bed and ended up, uh, going in a different direction and, you know, definitely loved, uh, I think a fit more of who I was as a coordinator. And, and, I, was, and I was getting to that stage where I'm t- still trying to figure out who I was as a coordinator and trying to figure out my philosophy and trying different stuff on to see what, you know, see what would work for me. But you know, that, that's initially the process of how it all happened. I remember having that conversation with you and you were like, I was like, what's your five-step game? You're like verts and mesh. I'm like, Tony Franklin doesn't even run mesh anymore. I think that was, <laughs> that was during the time he kind of put it away. Yeah, I think he was, I don't think he was doing it either. And I think, that stage now. and I think it came back because everybody's answers to RPOs was man. And then he's like, all right, well, I guess we've got to break it back out. And as you can see in some hope, high profile games, I will, I know this is the offensive pod, but I will not say the names to protect the innocent. There's been some high profile games where mesh has just dominated and, um, has become an issue for defenses and it was like going back. But I remember that conversation with you and really at that time, I think, you know, air raid, the core of the air raid was the screens and five-step passing. And I remember we, I remember talking through this with you because when you put together the offense, I think I, I didn't know if I helped, but like we were, I think we were having a lot of conversations about like what stresses you out. I remember you asking me stuff about that and I remember we both said the same thing. We were saying something like, if you're having to throw five-step in your high school passing game to get you out of trouble, you're probably not going to be very good. Like, let's avoid throwing five-step by or having to hang our hat on it. Obviously, you want to be able to throw five-step passing concepts, but being forced into running five-step concepts is a different animal than wanting to run five-step concepts, so to speak. So, I and I think that, you know, you and I were, th- I remember thinking through that and then all of a sudden I remember feeling pretty good about what you'd come up with until we got on the field. And I was like, mm, I don't like this because you were just destroying us. And then I had, it made me better too, because then I had to go back and I'm like, well, shit, what, what answers am I going to come up with? I remember you ran zone lock with a five eight out in the boundary. And I was like, mm, spooky nightmares. I need something else. Like I remember being freaked out about that for years because you were just shredding us. And the offense just, I mean, I remember it, it, it picked up in 15, you know, I know 14 was a tough year and then in 15 it started picking up and then man, 16 and 17, it was crazy. Cause our first two years at Sarah, I would say the defense was more dominant Then in, in, in 15, the offense was definitely more dominant. And then in 16 at the beginning of the year, I mean, we, we lost games because we couldn't get off the field and we were only staying in games is because every time we give the ball, you score. And that what was cool in our last year together is it was like defense was king. And in, in our first two years, offense was king in the next two years. And then our last year together, it was like, both were great. <laughs> you know, like it was like, we had all came together and it was great. I mean, you know, uh, just thinking about that staff and just and and, and having an amazing head coach like Patrick, and then having an offensive coordinator and, and a phenomenal line coach in Patrick, and then having you as the offensive coordinator. I mean, I got spoiled going to practice every day. You know, when you when you're used to that's what you're used to. It's like shit. This is tough. And uh, and really challenge. I mean, we the the best battles. And they, you know, you hear this about you know the dream team and other stuff. Oh, practices were harder than the games. But I remember being more stressed out in practice. Not stressed out, but like 
physically or mentally, but like you were stressing our defense more than anybody else that we played. And I remember that was really, it was like we would get in games and I'd be like, wow, we don't have to defend this and this and this. And this is easy, you know, like, and and so the, a lot of the concepts that you came away with, um, were really, really great. Um, so after this break, we're going to come back with Stephen Lowe and we're going to talk about how he has evolved his offense the past couple years, how he has managed the personnel at Bosco with so many great players, how he managed his two quarterback system. And then we're going to talk more about the double wing after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Bobby Peters, new fantastic book, the 2020 Green Bay Packers complete offensive manual. Coach Peters hits another home run with his trademark style of in-depth analysis of last year's highest scoring offense in the NFL. The book breaks down the Packers' run game, centering on their top three runs, outside zone, inside zone, and duo, with a further examination of their auxiliary runs, power, and jet sweep. Peters shows the base rules of each play, the most used variations, as well as offering the weekly adjustments to give the Packers better leverage or numbers against specific defenses, something any coach can adapt to their thought process. Where Coach Peter's book shines the brightest is his deep dive into the passing game, giving you in-depth examples of each major concept while highlighting how the offense puts their best receiver, Devontae Adams, into the best positions to get beneficial one-on-ones through formations in motion. The passing game review shows the Packers' quick game with new wrinkles on their dragon, Omaha, Lookie, and stick routes. Their favorite dropback concepts, including mesh, shallow, drive, all go special, middle read, dagger, and more. And a further study on their various play action passes, high and low red zone routes, as well as screens. Coach Peters remarked that of all the NFL offenses that he studied, the 2020 Green Bay Packers translates best to college and high school levels, and I couldn't agree more. With a focus on the base scheme with new wrinkles, as opposed to the quote-unquote traditional NFL way of adding entirely new concepts. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I think you will too. So pick up your copy by going to Amazon, searching the 2020 Green Bay Packers Complete Offensive Manual by Bobby Peters, or by clicking the link in the show notes, or you can just go to my Linktree, which is linktree.com slash coachvass. Again, that's linktree.com slash coachvass, and the link will be right there. Whether you want to study all facets of the best offense in football, add them to your playbook, or keep up with the latest trends, you got to pick this book up in paperback or Kindle. Make Defense Great Again is also brought to you by Huddle. Hey coaches, did you tune in to Huddle's Blitz 21 Summit? If you did, you already know. If you didn't, you missed the unveiling of Huddle's new AI camera for outdoor venues. The crazy thing is, the camera's actually hands-free. That's right, hands-free. As in, you don't have to touch a thing. It automatically tracks the action on the field without a camera person needing to zoom or pan. It automatically starts recording based on your huddle schedule. And that's not all. It live streams for your fans that can't be at the field. It automatically clips plays and uploads videos so you can start reviewing as soon as the game's over. And if you've got huddle sideline, yes, this replaces your press box angle. And by the way, 
This is a one-time installation. It takes just a few minutes to set up. You mount it, you set it, and you forget it. And this will be ready for your program in 2021. And if you've got the athletic department package, this device comes at no extra cost. Learn more about everything this incredible camera does and how it fits into your program by visiting huddle.com slash coach Once again, that's huddle.com slash coach Check it out today and tell them coach Vass sent you. Now, when a lot of people think about St. John Bosco and Southern California as a whole, you know, they think, oh, these super schools, you know, these players, there's recruiting and they're transferring in and they can have whatever they want. And make no mistake, St. John Bosco gets a lot of really talented football players. But the difference is you're not recruiting to type. You're not, it's not Alabama. You're not saying, okay, we need to go find ourselves a tight end who's six foot three and above, and we need to find a, a, a fullback that is this, that, and the other. Yes, you get amazing players, but they come in all different shapes and sizes. So how do you evolve your offense every year? How do you pick your best 11? And what are some examples over the years of how you've changed things up based on who you've had? I know one year you had like three really good running backs. And I know some coaches, and we talked about this off air, I know some coaches must be like, you know, thinking at some level, like, well, how can I learn from a guy like Steven, who's at the number one school in the country last year or whatever? Like, we don't have those kids. Well, you may not have DJ as your quarterback. However, everybody goes through, it's all relative. Everybody goes through situations where they have more backs than receivers. They have more receivers than backs the different types of O-linemen, you know, you still have to change your offense based on what you have every year. Or I don't, I don't like using the word change because when I think change, you know, there's some schools that were made nameless that go, I know of a school that's gone from shotgun, double wing to double wing to uh single wing to flex bone in four years. Um, you know, you're not doing that. You're not changing. You're not going, all right, we're going to be spread 11 personnel, no huddle to, okay, we're going to huddle up and we're going to get under center and we're going to run Shanahan's offense or whatever. So how do you tweak your offense year to year and 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 talk about this past year? And I know we'll mention, we mentioned the two quarterback system. We'll get to that in a bit, but how do you, how do you evolve that offense every year? How do you get it to work for who you have? I, I remember one of the conversations we had was, um, you know, you, you were talking about the air raid and how like, they literally wouldn't flip a receiver left and right because, you know, they, they believe that, like, you know, if you spend all your time running your routes on the left side, you can get really good at it versus, you know, when you flip guys, you're kind of spending half your time running all the routes in both directions. Whereas, you know, what you always said that was really frustrating while watching offense was like, you know, you got a really, really good player. And if your system can't get that guy where you want him or you can't get him to do what you want him to do, then your system sucks and your verbiage needs to improve. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that conversation vividly. And that, that, that always stuck out with me because, you know, you have to be flexible from year to year because, you know, every stop I've been at, I mean, whether it be, you know, Gilroy, which was, you know, it, 
a middle of the pack California school to Bosco, who was, you know, at the top of the food chain. It's you, you're going to have variety of, of talent in at different positions and different guys you're, you're going to want to highlight in a different year. And if you don't have the flexibility within your terminology and how you communicate with your guys, um, it's going to be really hard for you to highlight those guys and put them in spots that you really want to do what they do best. So I think that that's one of the first things is, is um, taking a look at your verbiage, taking a look at the way you, um, you know, communicate plays in and, you know, finding the best possible way to streamline it so that you can be flexible with how you communicate. Because, um, you know, an offense I ran at, at Sarah might sound completely different than, you know, what I'd be running you know, this past year at, at, at Bosco. You know, you, you have to have the ability to, you know, put them in different personnel groupings, to get them in different formations, to motion them around how you want and uh, do it, you know, in a timely manner and do it in a way that you could practice, you know, feasibly within the season because it, there's only so many reps that you could take and there's only so many things that you can really hang your hat and get good at. So, you know, part of it is, you know, really analyzing the situation that you're in. I think every every team that I've ever you know, coached, it, it, you have that game or you have those one or two games that you're going to have to win. I mean, you know, whether it be a cross-town rival or, or league foe or, you know, long-time, you know, rivalry. You know, you, you're going to have that team that they might do something schematically that, you're going to have to have enough answers for us. So I think as long as you can cover those bases and, and have enough answers for the problems that you're going to expect to see in the year. Um, and, and you have, you know, a way to put your guys in the best possible situations to take advantage of those weaknesses. Um, I, I think that that's kind of what drives a lot of my decisions, uh, especially early on in the year where I'm kind of deciding what we want to roll with. Um, I think as, as you're, you know, getting in the first two games this year was really difficult because, you know, we only put a six game season. It's by the time you're kind of feeling yourself out, you know, the, the season was over. So, you know, I, I think you utilizing, um, you know, early on in, in as many competition periods as possible with your own defense and, you know, trying to get as many live looks as possible to try to figure out, you know, when it's nut cutting time, you know, who are you going to, you know, what concepts do you need to highlight to get that ball to that person? In, in order to, to, to be successful. Uh, so I think kind of experimenting and kind of starting with a bigger menu and figuring out and not being afraid to, to test the waters and put it on film and, and to, you know, take a look and evaluate it and see, does this fit us? And then once you kind of figure out, you know, where your home base is, then, then you kind of build, you know, around those, those places. And, you know, what I always try to do is make sure that, you know, we, we, we don't have holes within, you know, what we want to do, you know, if, um, you know, we take a look at our run game, you know, I want to make sure that we're able to attack every major gap and, and we have a point of attack that's going to, you know, make them have to defend, you know, any given gap at any point in time. Um, want to make sure that's covered, you know, in the, in the drop back game, we want to make sure that we have answers versus both, you know, man and zone coverages and, and match and, 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 and spot dropping type coverages. We want to make sure that, you know, the different style of defenses that we're going to see in a given year. Um, you're going to make sure your menu has, you know, enough to cover through it. It's kind of like uh, my online coach calls it the uh, the Cheesecake Factory menu. So they have like, I think, I mean, it's like Mexican and continental and Asian food all in one menu. It's like, it's a lot on the menu, but you're not going to eat off the, the entire menu 
uh, anytime you go there. But, you know, sometimes you might feel like more, you know, Mexican and sometimes you feel like more Asian. So, you know, in a different year, it's just, you'll have to kind of shine the light on a different part of your offense. So I think just having the flexibility to communicate that stuff in, I think is, is crucial. Yeah. I've said that about defense for since I started, like when we, when we install our defense, because on defense, you don't always have the choice. It depends on what you see. You know, I could sit here and be like, well, I don't want to run eight-man fronts. Well, that's great until you have to play the double wing. Then you better be in an eight. You know what I mean? Like, we're not we're not able to say, well, we're not going to do that. I mean, there's certain things you don't have to do. But, you know, I've always said I'm not married to a scheme. I'm married to winning. But I, I, I've said, like, our defense is the same thing but kind of in reverse. You know, in the summer, we're putting in a little bit of everything. We're putting, well, we're not putting a little bit of everything. We're putting everything in. And I've always used the culinary school analogy. You're going to go to school and you're going to learn how to make everything. And then that week, you're going to pick your specials that you're going to make. You're not going to make everything every day. But that sort of thing where you need to be able to go to different things, and depending on what you want to do. I mean, my learning... Uh, on on defense was very it was very limited for direct application when I was at Sarah because we saw wing T and double wing and wing T option and two back fly and one back fly and you know there's you could learn all the three high safety defenses you want but the teams you got to beat one's running the eye one's running the wing T the other one's running the double wing and then the other one's running two back fly well okay we're gonna you're gonna do a whole three safety package for third down when the team runs draw. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a phrase about bit winning business models that I'm sure you've heard before. And that's not one of them. So yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to have that, that flexibility and be able to go back. Now, can you give us a concrete example of how you've done that? Like I let, let's talk about the year that you had the three backs. If, if you wouldn't mind. You know, besides subbing them in and out, like what were some things that you did specifically? Uh, just ch- jump into 20 personnel and try to get two of them on the same field, but not just leave them in traditional 20 personnel sets. Um, you know, we were able to get uh, two of our guys trained up to play some wide out too as well and uh, get them out in some space. So you're in multiple formations within the same personnel grouping. So that's not just, you know, a small set of plays that you have to defend. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, utilizing them, you know, uh, yeah, w- w- with the, w- with motions and, and things like that to get them both, you know, threatening the field, both, you know, in the box and also horizontally, I think was, was huge for us. And then, you know, play action and be able to use them, you know, blocking and flipping guys. And, uh, that was huge for us too, as well. Just being able to, to get them and, and, more than just you know split backs or, or things like that i think that was one of the one of the ways we we're able to get multiple guys on the field and have them both be a weapon at, at, at all points in time are there any other specific situations that you've been at you know when we were at sarah because some jerk stole all your tight ends uh you only used them in the double wing but is there any other scenarios that maybe i didn't address that are that i didn't know about where you were overloaded at a certain position and how you kept everybody happy because, you know, 
the in Southern California, I think the transfer rules are pretty open. So if you don't keep kids happy, they can leave. Am I am I right on that? Uh, for the most part, but I mean, there there are some things that stop people from transferring. But I mean, typically, if if kids want to leave, they're they're gonna they're gonna find a way to 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 leave and take off. But uh, you know, for the most part, I mean, I, I've had a couple examples of of having to play multiple quarterbacks. So I mean, at Sarah, we ended up playing two quarterbacks. I mean, one one was a a sophomore who was more of your traditional drop back passer who was he ended up being the I mean literally every he holds every single record I think in the Sarah you know uh, history book and that that includes I think you I mean, mean Tom, Tom Brady, Brady doesn't have doesn't <laughs> have all the records you Tom Brady <laughs> yeah so um you know we, we were able to play a kid you know that had that skill set and then a kid that was more of a reluctant quarterback but was your best athlete on the team and you know you wanted to give him the ball in his hands as much as possible and um, we're able to create packages and stuff to get them both uh, on the field at the same time and and you know also to utilize you know their skill set I mean we, we ended up running some power read I think with a quarterback on the the sweep pass <laughs> and then he was running a sprint out pass if they actually played the uh, the power read portion so we're running like sprint out smash if basically we had to hand it off and then if they were playing upfield and try to box everything our quarterback would take it and he would end up running power reads that, that was like a fun little addition of, of things but just being creative of trying trying to find different ways to get them involved in the game plan and, and to utilize their skill sets now i know this isn't directly the question and we i promise i've said now three times we'll get to the two quarterback thing but this isn't directly addressed to my question but i will say and i'll let you explain it my favorite thing with sarah that we did was I think it was after Leckie graduated. So Leckie was our dynamic athlete. Patrick called him the best athlete in the history of Sarah or best football player in the history of Sarah, which is crazy since Sarah had Tom Brady, Bakhtiari, Lynn Swan, Greg Jeffries. It should have been Julian Edelman, but wasn't because I don't know. They rejected him or something. I don't know. There's a lot of really great players that have been through that school and he left. And then we had this little He's like, how tall talls Luke? Like 5'11", 5'10"? Yeah, 5'11". Right, his mom, if he listens, she listens, she's going to be pissed that I said <laughs> that he was 5'10". Sorry, Mrs. Batari. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we had this Luke who was 5'11 and had a slight frame. Uh, and... You know, we didn't have the flexibility of a 1A, 1B like we did for years because from 14, 15, and 16, we had we had backups that were very much in, in the race. And 17, Luke was our guy. And tell me the tell me the story. So we would run power read, but we would change who the quarterback was based on how the defense played. Yeah, well, uh, we would basically uh, shift at the last second, and then the running back would take the mesh and go through it and read it, and he would run the downhill portion. But then we would also attach a pre-snap gift on the backside of power read. So if basically they gave us the gift, or if there was some look that we didn't want to run power read into because they're you know sending you know NCAA or sending double you know edge blitzes into the into the run, the quarterback could push the running back back over, take the snap, and throw the, the pre-snap gift. Basically, if the gift wasn't there, they would run the power read. If they made the 
running back at the time who's actually the quarterback running the, the downhill pass, they make them give it, then you basically sprint out and you run sprint out pass with any type of combos you want to run out there. It was something that I got from Princeton at the time. They're they're doing some like two quarterback stuff. That was pretty unique. I then I must be thinking of something else. I was thinking of the play where it was power read, and if the end was going to squeeze, you would leave Luke at quarterback, hand the ball off to Isaiah, our running back, and have him run the stretch part. But I would if, do that. I would do that. I would do that by game plan. For the okay. Week. Okay. Yeah. And then by game plan, if the DN flew up field. Luke would line up a quarterback, and then at the last second, he would shift and be the running back. Isaiah would shift over and take the snap, fake the stretch to Luke, and then keep it on the power. And I always thought that was genius. I love Pari too much to give it up. I mean, in 16, we ran it as one of our base plays. I mean, it was it was a pretty good play at that time in, 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 uh, in that stage right there. And I love to play too much to give it uh, give it up. So I was like, I got to figure some solution to keep this playing our offense. So it's been good to us. We were blocking it really well, and you know, Luke could run around a little bit too. But yeah, I, I didn't want to slam like his 160 you know pound frame in there, you know, 20 times in the game. So you know, I, I thought, I thought, hey, why don't I just flip their uh, responsibilities and give them a pass option? <laughs> Smart man, I love that. So I've teased it enough. You had a two quarterback system this past year at Bosco. How did you manage that from a play selection standpoint, how you built your offense, but also how did you manage it personality wise and, 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 and the, manage the, the emotions of the players and really the parents. I mean, well, I, I'm first of all, I, I couldn't be any luckier because the, the two parents I have, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better situation just with parents. I mean, they, they were so supportive and really kind of let their kids just duke it out and, and let the kids basically, you know, speak on the field. I mean, we, we took as many metrics as we could to try to separate one. We told them the ultimate goal was to try to pick one starter. And, um, you know, throughout spring and, and basically our summer period and all the stuff, I mean, they were competing with each other in the weight room, you know, competing against each other on the field when we got to actually practice. And then by the time we got in the pads, you know, we can really find a kid to separate. And it wasn't because either kid was not getting the job done. It was the fact that, you know, it was kind of the iron sharp and iron deal where basically one kid makes a play and it motivates the other kid to make a play. And, and they really fed off each other and, and made each other better. So, I mean, you know, we, we preached, you know, we, we preached about being about the team and, and not letting this be a distraction. The kids did an excellent job with it. So, I mean, I could imagine in a worse scenario and a worse situation that that going really, really sour, but um, it was actually a really unique and pretty dynamic situation with the two, because, you know, they, they both brought a, a different skill set, but they could do just enough of, of the other part where, you know, you couldn't just game plan. Hey, this guy's the pocket passer. This guy's going to be the, the runner. You know, they, they both did, you know, different varied, uh, um, levels of success for, you know, both using their feet to create and to extend plays and also staying in the pocket and throwing things on rhythm. So for me, game planning for it um, wasn't hard because they're pretty proficient in the, in the whole offense. And the fact that, you know, they're competing against each other, it's kind of like a college-like environment where, you know, you basically have another guy in the room and you're going to have more people in the room that are going to come and try to take the job. 
know, they, they really bought into the fact that this is what it's going to be like in college. And this is what it's going to be like as you, as you move up, because it's, it's never going to be easy. And you're not going to be, you know, gifted anything. You have to compete and you have to fight for your job. And um, I think the kids did an excellent job buying into it and truly, you know, competing for the job and pushing each other. I think it, it wouldn't be as good of a situation if the kids weren't so mature about it. Like at no point where they, you know, they were helping each other. I mean, literally they'd get off on drive and I'm up in the booth talking to one of them on the headset and they're basically echoing or relaying what they just saw on the previous drive. Or they're talking about, Hey, what, what should we do in this next drive of, you know, if we're seeing this look, I mean, how should we adjust? I mean, they're, they're literally trying to problem solve and work things out together. I mean, that, that's a special situation that I don't think exists in a lot of, in a lot of quarterback battles. And, and I'm, I'm lucky in that case that I have two excellent kids that have a good head on their shoulders. You know, they want to be better, but at the same time, they, they care about their team and, and they care about, you know, what, what you know, we're doing as a group, as opposed to just an individual. So uh, it's, I don't, I don't think it's uh, always that way, but I, I'm definitely uh, lucky. I'm very, very lucky and, and, and grateful that, you know, I have that situation right now because it definitely could have been a very rough situation, but you know, I couldn't ask for anything more. Maybe uh, to borrow a phrase from our former boss, Patrick, maybe I'm having friend vision, uh, but uh, you know, one of my favorite things about you is that you're, you're so humble and I've told you for the, for the time that I've known you, which is now 13 years that you're too humble you know, you try pulling that G golly shit on me. I'm like, stop. Okay. You're great. You know, stop. I don't want to hear it. And I would kind of piss me off sometimes. I'm like, just, okay. You did a great job. Just like, you know, we'd have some kick-ass victory and score 60 points. And I'd be like, Hey man, great job. Well, we suck today. I'm like, all right, shut up. You know, and Patrick used to tell us both, you know, it's hard to win high school football games, you know, enjoy it. And he used to have that whole thing where he would come in and I'm going to tell this, but it's not going to recreate on the podcast. But he would come in and be like, oh, my God, we gave up that sack. And, oh, my God, no, I can't believe. I can't believe we didn't execute that play. Oh, my God, we were so terrible. And then he would ro- walk up to the board and write the score on the on the board and circle it. <laughs> and I, I forgot about that until now. But you are a very humble guy. So I know you're going to give me a straight answer. Do you think it's down to the the kids just having great parents and being great kids for that situation to work. Do you think it's one of those things? Cause you know, we had a great environment at Sarah and people would say, well, what do you guys do? You know? And Patrick would say, well, chapel. And we would say different things and chapel included, but you know, Sarah was a special place that people came with a certain mentality that wanted to be a part of something. And, you know, we would get the individuals every once in a while, but it's like the kids that go to De La Salle. When you go to De La Salle, there's a history, there's a tradition. You know, you know things are going to be a certain way going in. There's been very hope. Uh, there's been very high profile people that have come in and tried to upset the apple cart, so to speak, and, and thought that they could get above it. And they found out very quickly and very sadly, that's not the case. I'm thinking of a former NFL executive, or he might be a current NFL executive, but in a, f- a certain Hall of Fame quarterback. That found out real fast. Do you think that the situation that you have honestly was just 
hey, man, we have two great kids. We have a great program with two great sets of parents, and we were lucky. Or do you have anything tangible that you can give advice-wise to coaches? Because most people listening to the story are they're probably nodding their head and be like, yeah, that sounds great. That ain't happening in my place. You know, is it just one of those things where you guys have this program with this this reputation and you just struck lightning in a bottle with these two kids and they were just great kids? Or do you think there's something that coaches could do to facilitate this sort of environment in an honest in in, in a sincere yeah. and honest way? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, what I did early on was um, let them know that Basically, I was gonna I was gonna measure everything for them. I was gonna I was gonna literally take every single throw and track it and grade it. And I mean, you, you have to have that tangible evidence to basically tell the kids the truth. I mean, I think you have to have the conversation with them early and, and and often about where they stand, what they need to improve. Exactly, be be really really clear with you know what their road needs to be to win the job. I think I I I, I definitely hammered that home from the first rep that we took until literally the last, you know, rep of our game on, on Saturday night. I mean, um, I, I think the only way you can do this is you, you have to be as brutally honest to the kids as possible. And um, you have to grade them, you know, as, as objectively as possible and be very, very clear about uh, your, your system of how you grade and what you're looking for and, and your standard. I think that's, uh, the best way you can you can basically spell it out is that you know I'm not going to decide who's going to be the starter. It's going to be you. You know, it's up to you to basically go and do these things. Here's what the you know here's what the parameters are. Here's what the rules are. Go get it done. I think the the, the clearer you can be, the the more conversations you can have uh, openly, the and you, the more the better relationship you can build with the guys um, to have those real conversations about you know, where they stand, I think that, that makes your headaches down the road a lot, you know, you know, a lot less, you know, severe and a lot less often. You know, Patrick used to preach about that to us about grading stuff. And I hated it, especially as a corners coach, because so many times you're not even involved in the play. That's why I always used the Gary Patterson critical play model where we had, okay, here's your overall grade, but you know, you you're in a bail position and you bail late and the receiver gets past you, you know, but the offense fumbles the snap and we pick up the fumble. Like you're going to get a minus. And, and furthermore, you know, if you bail every play and the run goes away from you, and you don't make any plays. I, I don't, I'll give you a plus, but what does that really matter? You know what I mean? I want to know yeah. what happens when it's coming at you, when the ball's being run at you. So you can have an overall grade, but have a critical play grade, but I didn't really that, appreciate that as a, and not even and not to be cynical, but as like a CYA move, cover your ass. Like, but it's true. I mean, again, you're, you're putting a much more positive spin on it, but you know, have everything graded, have a, an objective measuring stick in terms of some sort of rating system and then have the players rate themselves and then compare notes. Well, why do you think you got a plus on that play? Because I thought you were zero or minus. Because I always used to do minus, zero, plus, where I know some people do like zero, plus, 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 whatever it is. But sharing with them in that process, I mean, wh- what do you think? I, I, I think um, one of the things that was healthy was like um, like to define everything, what is, what is success as a quarterback, I think is... is um, 
because there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of gray area of like, all right, a kid drops a dime and, uh, you know, completes a pass and scores a touchdown. But like, was that the right play to be made? I mean, you know, did, did you, did you make the right decision? Did you take the right drop? Were there things that you still need to work on to be even better? Cause I mean, you could be, you could be overwhelming the, the team on the other side so much that I mean, you could throw it anywhere and it, it would, it would, it would be a touchdown or a completion. But is that going to work when that's not the case, when you get a better defender out there? I think defining little things like, all right, well, what's a good fake? Like after you, after you hand the ball off and you're trying to carry off your fake on, on, in the read game, what defines uh, you doing your job? I think having that answer and, and being able to look at your offense and when you grade guys, having that structure, I think, built in makes you a better teacher. I think now the kids don't have any gray area of, you know, what we're actually looking for. You know, we, we, we've, we've graded them in every single practice and we've hammered them home. Like this is the standard of what we're looking at when, you know, we're reading verticals, you know, the, your, your eyes weren't right. Well, I'm a docky points for that because I know in the long run, even though you might have some success here and there, it's going to be streaky because, you know, at, at best, because, you know, at certain point in time, you, your eyes aren't going to lead you to the right place or, you know, trying to get them. So the way we grade is we grade off an outcome, we grade off a process. So basically, you have an outcome grade, you have a process grade. Did you get the job done? And then did you follow the right process, mechanics, footwork, reads, to get you to the end result? So we measure that. Um, we track their explosive plays. We track their yardage, their completion percentage, uh, and then their efficiency when we get into games. So we factor all that stuff in to, um, you know, try to decide on who the starter would be. Um, and the crazy thing is we, we couldn't find a, a separation, you know, throughout our season, they just kept battling back. And it, it was, it was awesome to see because, you know, a kid would make a mistake and realize real quick, well, I can't make that mistake again. I'm gonna have to button up and dial it in and practice and really focus on, you know, those concrete things that we talk about because quarterback play isn't always concrete. And I think that that's where the, um, the gray area can hurt you if you don't kind of define where the parameters are and let them play within the boundaries. I always tell our quarterbacks, if you do everything I do uh, or you do nothing I, I tell you to do, we're going to be in trouble because at some point in time, you, you just got to give them the framework and let them play. And at some point in time, you got to let trust the fact that, you know, they're going to trust their abilities and let them go and, and do their thing. And that same token, if you do nothing, I, I tell you, you just go rogue. Well, I ain't going to work either. So. I think that that's kind of a good, uh, you know, philosophy. That's how it's kind of guided how I build that framework of, you know, what it's going to be to, to play quarterback for us at Bosco. Yeah, I think that's great. I love the process and the outcome grade. You know, I was watching a clip earlier today on Twitter and it was the defensive side of the ball. Alabama's running sale versus Kentucky. And I got into a philosophical discussion on something else and wasn't really paying attention to the clip, but, Basically, the the defense is rolling down to cover three, weak, and Alabama throws a sail route. The corner, who's supposed to play the deep third, is playing a half technique. He's like sitting down at seven yards, and or not a, a half technique, but what you would play in halves coverage. He's playing in the flat. So everybody else is playing cover three except the field corner Like ca plays catch on the receiver, bump, bumps him, and then runs. And then peels off the out route and almost picks it off. And it looks like a great play until you realize, 
hey, man, you were supposed to be in three deep zone. Now, <laughs> if he had been in three deep zone, they would have completed the pass, especially because one of the guys dropping didn't do a very good job. And it's almost like a plus minus. Same thing for quarterbacks. Okay. You're supposed to, you know, run, say running cross uh, and, you know, Y cross and the X is the pre-snap look and the corner starts to bail. You got the fade by the X and the, and the corner starts to bail and the quarterback looks out there and he knows that if he sees press, he can throw the fade to the X and he sees the corner bail, but he's like, no, nah, I'm locking in. And he takes a snap and he underthrows the ball. And the receiver like comes back to it because, you know, underthrown deep balls are one of the hardest things in the corners because you're either going to get mossed or PI'd most of the time. He throws an underthrown ball, which sucks. And the receiver comes back and makes some circus catch. Do you give him a plus or a minus? You know what I mean? I, he didn't mean that. Like, I think it's almost like sometimes with offense, it's like, okay, process, outcome, and then intent. Like, did you really mean to do that? You know what I mean? And so some of those guys are, I know the cool thing to say right now is off platform, but you're right. If if they're doing, and it's like we used to coach our safeties. If you're always lined up at four by four in this defense, or you're never lined up at four by four, we got a problem. You know, you got to move around, but you can't move around every play. And, and that's the sort of thing that, you know, relating it back to, to my world, um, that I, I don't think it's, I've, I've rarely heard it described better than what you just described. And I think there's a lot of value in that. I really like the process grade and the outcome grade because you also don't want to dock a kid if he does the right thing because they're going to make plays too, you know, and or, you know, you throw an interception because the ball gets tipped. Well, the ball gets tipped because the left tackle let the D end inside. Yeah. Well, you threw it. You made the right decision. You made the right throw, but it's not your fault. And I think it, I, I love that because football is, you know, we tell the kids that, you know, everybody has to do their 111th and everybody has to be perfect on every play, but then don't yell at each other when you make, I mean, you want to, not that you don't want to yell at each other when you make mistakes, but you don't want to point the finger. You know, you want to, you want to preach accountability. It's a fine line of preaching accountability yep. to your brother, but also you don't want to be like, I can't believe you did this. And I can't believe you did that without owning your own mistakes. And so it's a hard, I think it's hard for young guys, especially if you're not a clear communicator as a head coach, you can give conflicting messages and you can say, Hey, you know, we're all in this together, but do your one eleventh and just do your job. Well, wh well, which is it? Like, what do we say all the time? You know, offense, you're as good as your strongest weapon defense. You're as good as your weakest link. Well, you know, if you're on offense and you're you're doing something and one guy makes a mistake, which I guess I'm going against my point, you could execute a play and maybe this is playing into a larger point. You know, you could also make that that catch the ball, throw a fade, and nobody else does anything. Even the quarterback does a shitty throw, but the receiver just goes up and makes a crazy play. One guy can carry the team, put the team on his back, do and but then at the other hand, you could have it perfectly blocked, but the left tackle oversets the DN jumps inside, annihilates the quarterback, forcing a helicopter throw, and he gets picked off and housed. And everybody else was right on what they were supposed to do. But that guy now, how do you keep the team from like melting down from within to like everybody point the finger at that one kid and be like, dude, if you did your job, you know, and I think that's the art of coaching, I think. 
separating the process from the outcome, separating the selfishness that you have to do. I said before, one of the hardest things to do when you coach at an amazing school with great culture is play quarters coverage. And everybody goes, well, why do you say that? Well, because I have been at places and I've been around great kids where playing quarters is difficult. And that's because in quarters, what do you tell your guys? You have this guy unless he does this and you go help your buddy. So the offense takes, let's go back to Y cross. The offense takes an inside stem. The Y takes his inside stem to get under Sam over Mike or whatever you call it now. And the safety's like, oh, that's not my guy is gone. I'm going to go help my brother. Got to go help my brother. The guy takes two steps and gets vertical down the field and he's wide ass open. And you're screaming at the kid. Be like, why didn't you? T- that's your guy. And then he's like, well, I was trying to help. You know, it's almost sometimes it's like you need to be selfish. You need to do your job. You know what I mean? Like you don't you can't be in a hurry to help somebody else, like especially O-line play. How many times were we at Sarah? And I don't I can't speak to Bosco because I'm not there. How many times did you have a well-intentioned kid? that wanted to help his teammate out. Oh, they got a really good end. Like when you played that Thibodeau kid, I'm sure the guard really wanted to go out there and help that tackle when he had to block him, but he also has to block the guy in front of him. If somebody shows, he's got to block him too. You know what I mean? And so it's like that, that, that tightrope of walking of do your one eleventh and be selfish in terms of you have to do your job, but then you got to help out your teammate and you don't want to, you, you don't want to, get on a kid for making a play, even if he did it the way you didn't want him to, but then you don't want to create bad habits. You know what I mean? So it's, it's such a hard, I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent now, but it's so, I think that's really the art of coaching is being clear in your communication to know when you're like, Hey, that's a great job. Never do that again. (laughs) It reminds me of the old, and I've brought this clip up or I brought this up a couple of times in the defensive pod. It reminds me of the old clip of Brian Billick when Ed Reed picks the ball off like eight yards in the end zone. And he's like, Ed, get yes, down, no, Ed, no, get no. down. Yes. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. You know, at that, at that point, it's like, hey, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen and amazing. And we won the game, but please never do that again. Like, <laughs> where's that line? It's not clear. And I think that's what makes good. That separates the good coaches between the great coaches. Coaches, it's a fact that games are won or lost in the red zone. It's the most critical area of the field. And if you're just running the same plays at the 10-yard line as you're running at the 40, you're going to have a rough night. The red zone is its own animal. The spacing changes drastically the closer you get to the goal line, so you better have some special plays to deal with these challenges. We've all lost games where we didn't take advantage of our red zone opportunities and settled for field goals instead of touchdowns. It's an absolutely crushing feeling to know that you could have done more to help your team if you had a better plan. That's exactly why Coach Alex Kirby spent so much time putting this collection together. 101 Red Zone Plays features unique schemes from 41 different college football teams from the 2020 season. These teams include Alabama, Ohio State, Coastal Carolina, Clemson, Ole Miss, UCF, Florida, Oklahoma, Liberty, and many more. Steal ideas from the top minds in football today and add them to your playbook. Best of all, Coach Kirby is offering Run Vast Option and Make Defense Great Again listeners a special discount. Get 20% off when you go to throwdeeppublishing.com slash vast and use the promo code 
VAST20 at checkout. That's V-A-S-S, the number two and the number zero. Don't wait. Add this invaluable resource to your coaching library today. Again, that's throwdeeppublishing.com slash VAST. And make sure you use the VAST20 code at checkout. Hey now, come on at ya. This week's Coach Fast Coach Tube Corner features the one and only Brett Deerman identifying and attacking coverages with RPOs. Get an up-close look at one of the most electrifying schemes in football today, taught by one of the guys who knows it the best. Of course, that's Coach Brett Deerman. The offense that produced the unbelievable numbers after working with Gus Malzahn and Auburn. Coach Deerman engineered the biggest offensive turnaround in college football at Arkansas Tech. Change your reads up. Coach Deerman walks you through his thought process when designing plays and explains how he thinks about different pre-snap and post-snap RPOs. Stay one step ahead of the defense with Coach Deerman as he takes you in an in-depth look at the many different coverages designed to stop the modern spread offense and shows you exactly what the defense is thinking. What is he going to talk about? Inside zone RPOs with flat, split zone RPOs with glances, power RPO with spot, as well as the vertical curl concept, counter RPO with an out, split zone ISO RPO with snag, inside zone lock RPO with a swing, as well as 10 personnel zone box cut with RPOs and, of course, film. He's going to talk you through what defenses do out of 2 by 2 what they do versus 3 by one with in-depth look at how he will attack each of those coverages and how to shred them, including palms, key invert, cover two, two read, three-week coverage, cover one, cover zero, special coverage, and more. Check it out. Go to linktree.com slash coachvass and see the course of the week, or you can just go to the show notes. Again, that's linktree.com slash coachvass. So I've talked about this in the past, I talked about it in the last podcast when talking to my friends that run the power T offense. I've talked about it a lot on other podcasts, on huddle webinars, anybody that will basically listen. When we were at Sarah, as we mentioned, we took over a team. And I don't know the percentages, but let's just say it was half flex bone, half double wing. And like Patrick said, I want to be able to throw the football. I want to be able to play with tempo. I want to have an option element into the the system and I want to be able to run the double wing on some, some piece, some piece of it. I've told the story that in our state championship game at one point, four out of our five offensive linemen were out starting offensive linemen were out. And that necessarily what didn't mean in that game. We lost Neo Mafi in the first round of the playoffs. We lost another lineman. He, I guess he tore his ACL one was Moses on the interception earlier in the game. And then the center was out for a little bit. And one of the other guards or whatever was out for a short period of time. And then our quarterback had got rocked on a play. He had broken ribs. We didn't know about he t- powered through. didn't tell us really. And we were tied 14, 14 with the number one offense in the country. And we rattled off 24 unanswered points and we did it mostly in the double wing. And I, told the story in the last pod that we were laughing because in that moment, Patrick, who had been this flex bone, double wing, used to run the split back veer guy was telling you to throw the ball. 
or not telling you, but saying, hey, man, why don't we throw the ball? And you being this guy that had run the air raid for all these years was saying, no, I'm not going to stop running the ball. You guys like re- reversed roles. <laughs> but I, I've said this to everybody. Listen, I tried to take it to me or I, I tried to take it with me to Clovis that the double wing and I, it could be any kind of contrarian power run offense, but we're going to use the double tight double wing under center superpower, whatever you want to call it, offense, that it gives you a sense of toughness. It gives you a way to control the clock. That when you're in high school football and you have to deal when you go on the road with crazy crowds or the weather or quarterback play, especially in our first year when our quarterback, JV and freshman year had run, he was a triple option receiver, I think, at one point or a runner or something. He wasn't a throwing quarterback. And or if he was, he didn't do it much. And in and, and the double wing tossing the ball that, you know, when we switched offenses, it was a nice safety blanket. I've advocated to anybody that runs the spread, especially the air raid, where the run game can sometimes take a back seat. And I know a lot of people have looked at me like I'm crazy, but it's my experience being on the other side of the ball that running this is effective and it it gives you a safety blanket and it lets you instill a toughness that I don't necessarily think you can do when you're in the spread, especially when you're vertical setting all the time, you know, getting foot to foot and working on double teams and, and that sort of thing. Talk to me about how you view the double wing as a package. And even though I've told the story at various pieces throughout the years, talk to me through the philosophy of it, how you did it. And then how we practiced it. Well, um, I think the number one reason why I think, uh, well, before I get into like the philosophy and everything and how we practiced and stuff was, I think the number one reason why I loved it. And I, why I kind of fell in love with it more and more as I kind of ran with it was, you know, the, the passing game could sometimes, you know, be a little bit off or, you know, yeah, you know the wind could be crazy and it could be wet and whatever. It just, for whatever reasons, like you, you may not be able to show up completely as, as, as sharply as you'd like in, in, in your drop back game or, or in your passing game sometimes. But the one thing that always shows up is, you know, you can take your, we always call it the, you know, the security blanket and get your, your comfortable double wing security blanket on. And that's going to be, you know, there for you whenever. So, I mean, we busted it out in change of pace type situations in the open field. Uh, to create some momentum or, you know, basis sometimes just to say F you to the team that we're playing that, that we're just going to, we're, we're going to smash you in the face. or we're, we're going to, we're going to pound on you for a little bit. You know, we bust out for, you know, obviously short down situations or, you know, goal line, but I think it fills in and it marries up pretty well with some of the deficiencies sometimes that, you know, you would get in, in, in a spread offense, you know, in some senses, you know, when you can't spread the field vertically anymore, you know, you, you have to create some other solutions and some other things that um, you can do that are going to pose problems that, you know, defensive corners are going to you know, stay up and, and worry about. And I mean, I, I literally spent a 14 hour meeting with you on a Saturday talking over double wing defenses. Cause you're so concerned about it. <laughs> and <laughs> this is true. I mean, I watched, I watched you like basically, I mean, freak out over this, this offense. And I knew, you know, with, with how much stuff we had in 
you know, the spread attack and how much we had to do there. And all of a sudden you have to defend this foot to foot double wing package that you're going to run a couple of, you know, well pieced together, you know, plays in, in a series, you know, also, you know, and, and it's not just, you know, in, in you know, short situations, like they're, they're going to bust it out in some random situation and make you defend it. You know, I think uh, attitude wise, I mean, you know, we always talked about bringing the, the toughest 11 dudes on our team and, almost treating it like a special team. And that's kind of how we practiced it. Having that, that, that element and getting some of those guys into and, and, and involved in, in the game plan and, you know, getting the ball going downhill directly at them, which is a complete change of pace. And it's just something that, I mean, you, you have to, I mean, it's almost schizophrenic in a way, you know, when you look at it from the outside, but when you're defending it, I mean, it's think about how much stuff you have to go against. It's like, okay, you're going to get foot to foot double teams, Okay, at any point in time, I can get red, I can get trapped, I can go and get, you know, pass, you know, uh, I, I'm not the pass rush. I mean, how many different things does that defensive front have to go face in, in that week? I mean, if, if you're going to get option stuff, RPO stuff, double wing, I mean, I, I, that's a fair amount. But it's not to the point where we can't effectively practice it and get good at it. So, I mean, especially as we, we got it systematically where all three levels are running it, and it's something that, you know, they, they walked in on day one, be able to be able to run. It's, it was pretty easy to practice and manage throughout a week because, you know, we would take a 10 minute special teams at the beginning of practice, all hands on deck. Um, and basically be able to get our indoor work for it in about five minutes. And then, you know, that would carry over obviously in the, uh, O-line indo and the tight end running back indo. And then, um, you know, we would rep plays and against the fronts that we would have to problem solve against. The rules are really simple. It marries up to a lot of the rules that we have in our base run game anyways. So there's a lot of merit to combining the two um, to really create a, a, you know, a, a full attack, I think. A lot for somebody to have to handle in a given week. Yeah, and I mean, as you mentioned, there's something about, and I'm talking about the under center version, not the gun version, not the, oh, we're going to split out an X. And, and granted, we did use different packages over the years. We we weren't always under center, but for the most part, when we put it in, we were under center. And there's something about that defense as a defensive coordinator that freaks people out. And I'm a walking, living testament to that. I think it just gives you a... It just presents a lot of problems, and I, I can tell you when we played Patrick when he was the flex bone, we put together this. We basically hedged our bets. We put together this flex bone defense that I thought would frustrate them and that they would go into the double wing because they think they could grind us out. And we was, we basically spent, and you were on the staff, and you may not remember this, and I don't always, you know, revisionist history is a thing, but I remember spending most of our time on the double wing and just saying, hey, they're going to get frustrated because we couldn't practice both with the same amount of time, but you can't do that with the spread. And I think, you know, if you invest 10 minutes a day, and early in the season it would be 20, and then it would go down to 15, and then it would go down to 10, and then by the end of the year you are incorporating it in your team periods, especially on Wednesdays or Thursdays, depending on if we played on a Friday or Saturday, your last full practice of the week, you didn't even take a period. It's all incorporated in our team periods. And... You know, especially if you're organized with your staff and scout defense, you know, because a lot of it's going to use def defenders in the offense. 
uh, and, and you can have a scout defense ready to go. And we wouldn't go full speed in when we would get in those team sessions, but you could really, really work it. And I think it psychologically freaks defensive coordinators out. You know, if you spend 10 to 15 minutes on it a day over an entire season, that's a lot of practice on something. And we ran, correct me if I'm wrong, we ran uh, power. We ran some version of power wide if we saw certain fronts. We ran, uh, now, one thing we did do was we ran rocket and fly sweep. And that was only because we ran the rocket version because Patrick had run the flex bone and rocket was already in the game plan. So, but we kept it. We ran counter. We ran a trick play every once in a while. And then we had a couple, we had like flood pass, power pass, whatever you want to call it. And we would have some sort of uh, scissors combo where if the guys would play man, we could, you know, run a post on one side, a post on the other and try to get somebody open. It wasn't a huge package, but it was enough to freak people out. And it was something that you had to spend a pretty good amount of time on. And we basically accumulated the time early in the year and it built up and built up and built up and we kept our rules really simple and maybe we can get into that a little bit, but you know, I I feel that it freaks people out. And the other thing that it does, if you're on a platooned team is it brings togetherness. We treated it like a special team. And here's the great thing. If you're a head coach, if you're an offensive coordinator, if you're both, um, but particularly if you're for an offensive coordinator working for a defensive minded head coach and you're listening to this and going, man, that's a really good idea. They're going to buy in because most defensive coaches are conservative and it's your best defense. What is the best defense? The, you know, you could say, well, the 46, the four, three, the four, four. No, the best defense is not being on the field. The offense is if they're not on the field, they cannot score. And so if you tell me and we got into some games, Valley Christian 2014 comes to mind. We were outmanned. We had a transfer quarterback who wasn't eligible until the following week. We had Lecky, who ended up being our quarterback, but wasn't supposed to be. Sophomore, he had a tough first couple games. We play Valley. We put him in. We basically, we out-Valleyed Valley. We we snapped the ball with like one second on the clock, starting at the beginning of the game. We fleeced the clock. We shortened the game, shortened the possessions, and we got out of there with a 14-point win, which I'm not convinced, or, or, or I'm sorry, I'm convinced to this day would not have happened if we were in the spread the entire game. And so on top of the toughness, on top of the freaking the defensive coordinator out, you build a sense of camaraderie. When we did the double wing, we truly found the best 11 guys, not necessarily on your football team, but the best 11 guys for those positions. We were going to find the best down blocking tight end. And if that meant it was another lineman, we'd bring an extra jersey and we or we had them change numbers. If it was a linebacker, you know, we let him go over to the offense, I guess, for a little bit. You can go over there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in all seriousness, we would use DNs. There were years we used DNs. There were years we used an actual tight end, a kid that we thought would be a tight end in college. We used, I mean, we've used all sorts of bodies, our fullbacks. We used defensive tackles one year. One year we used um, uh, a tight end or a, a linebacker. Like we've used, we used all sorts of people in that position. 
And we would say, okay, who's our best down blocking guy? Who's not on the line? We would try to keep the line intact. I know that. But we would say, okay, who's the best down blocker? Okay, who's the best kickout guy on the entire team? And we would try out basically, and, and I maybe I'm I'm overcomplicating this or overorganizing it. I remember there being some sort of circuit set up at some point where we let yeah. yeah, we let guys who who we would explain the positions and what they had to do. And then we would say, okay, who do who do you think? If you think you can kick out a, a D end, come over here. If you think you could be a great down blocker, come over here. And I think sometimes we'd bring in like a sixth lineman who would go and be one of the linemen and we'd move a lineman to tight end. I, 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 I can't remember. Again, maybe I'm, you know, convoluting two stories and wrapping them to one or something. But I remember maybe bringing in a six lineman sometimes when we moved one of the guys was the lineman. To, I mean, I remember at one point we talked about putting Neo as the tight end. Uh, I don't yep. know if we actually ever did it, but, um, you know, having it was a true like special team. Okay. The runners were usually the runners, but sometimes they weren't like, I remember we played Lecky as one of the wings and he was our quarterback. And he, <laughs> the funny part was, was not funny, but, Lecky for the life of himself could not take a snap under center for a while. And so we tried to go in the gun, but then we were like, then later on, I think a year or two later, we're like, you know what? Just put him as one of the runners. He's our best runner. Let's put him as one of the running backs. I mean, sometimes those running back, I remember we used Marco Mosqueda, who was a safety there one time. It was who's going to run the best downhill, be the best downhill guy. And all right, wings, you know, because we were very, it was a very, left right offense it wasn't we did not play it we did not flip our line that i remember i think we did we tried it once or twice i think in practice but i think no, it was we, like we, we did it we did it in some game plan situations but okay yeah, for the most part no so so okay so we did do that but you know and it it brings the team not only that but it brings the team together it's hard to be offense versus defense when half of your defense is playing offense on the double wing because if we were getting frustrated in the spread and then the defense, you know, it's natural. Kids are going to chirp. Oh, God, here we go again or whatever. And then be like, all right, well, you go in and do it. Oh, you can't do it either. Then shut up. <laughs> you know, like there's that kind of mm-hmm. element to it. And it really brought the team together. I'll never forget. And I told this story in the last pod. I'm sorry. But I'll never forget. We're in that state championship game. Uh, we have the four replacement linemen in. And I think we ran power right. The right guard whiffed on his double. The left guard pulled around and did not block a soul, and we got nine yards. And it was because the other team had an idea. I'm just, how do I say this? They had an, a specific idea on how to defend the offense that wasn't particularly effective. And, and we got nine yards in that first play. And I remember Patrick being like, okay, we're going to be all right. And if you're having to spend time defending our explosive offense, and then you got to turn around and get in foot-to-foot, you know, it's it's a lot. Like, I think one of the ways to stop the double wing is to create piles, right? I'm not telling you anything that you, you don't already know. It's very hard to convince a kid to fall on their stomach and take double teams all week. It, let me tell you. And it's really hard to do if you're only spending 10% of your defensive practice on it. So now you have a decision to make. If you spend all your time defending the spread, then you're going to be real sad when we jump in the double wing. If you spend an inordinate amount of time defending the double wing, you're going to be really sad when we jump in the spread. 
And then we did dirty shit to people like when we played MIDI, mm-hmm. we lined up in the double wing and shifted out, and ran our base offense. I mean, there's a lot that you can do. I'll never forget the <laughs> so teams that would sub, we would um we would jump into 10 personnel looks out of our double wing personnel. And we did swap a lot of personnel. Like we would change tight ends and stuff. So it was really hard to track what we were gonna do. But we had a special group in that looked like the double wing group. And then all of a sudden it was like, surprise. Yeah, we, we got a we got a couple of uh, sixty linemen sub packages out that ended up having to go zero and send a six man D line rush. Yeah, want to want to make a team. Uh, if you're playing a team and you want to make them waste their timeouts, jump in the double wing, get into it, run it for a play, and then the next play shift out of it. They'll waste their timeouts, I promise. Um, but anyway, so can we talk a little bit about the blocking schemes? Like how. How did we keep it so simple? Because a lot of people are going, oh, yeah, well, you guys are platooned and you there's private school and you had all this time. We actually now we would set the record for longest practice until they started making us cut our practices down by rules. But at Sarah, especially in our playoff runs, we didn't have lights. And so we would I remember the state championship the week before. I mean, what's the shortest day of the year? December 22nd. Here we are practicing on like December 15th. It's getting dark at like quarter to five, you know, but so we didn't have a lot of time, especially at the end of the year. But how did you keep it simple for coaches that are listening to this and be like, oh, my God, I want to do this. How did we keep it simple to do it? It's gap based football. So, I mean, you basically I think I believe Patrick's rules were basically down to double. So basically you're either down down block. If there's no one's down block. You're a double team the guy on you. And you know, other people use gap on down, gap down backer rules. So, I mean, basically living in that world, you could basically cover the majority of the fronts that you're going to see. Um, you know, the the only front that you're really having to, you know, game plan against is you know, your bear looks or when when you get basically twos, you know, fours and your, your sixes, when, when all guys are, are pretty much covered up, um, you know, you'll have to make some special adjustments for that. But, you know, by the time you get two, three games into it, you, you kind of see all the things you're going to see, you know, you know, defensively and schematically. It's just, you're going to rep basically, you know, your even front, your odd front, your bare looks, and then basically when everyone's covered down on the play side. So, I mean, there's only so many different varieties of ways that people are going to try to defend you in it. You know, people are either going to try to play some sort of too high shell and try to, um, you know, insert some safeties or bring some corners into the run fit, or they're going to play you in a one high look where they're going to try to play with two overhangs close to the box. I mean, there's, there's only so many things you can get out of it. So, you know, that's why your practice time can really be um, utilized pretty quick because you, you're never really going to prepare for a look that you're going to see and expect unless you, you know, we're lucky enough to have two doubling teams, um, you know, in our league. So we're kind of able to use some of that film to figure out how they defend us. But for the most part, you know, you kind of have to be able to adjust with simple rules. So, you know, just for the fact that it's gap based, it's you know that's what made it so simple, and the fact that we're already a gap team as is. Now, did I hear you right? Did you say that you saw two fours and sixes? Everybody had up. So basically, your your twos, your fours, and your nines. So basically, if you get twos, fours, and nines, um, you, you would have to have a special plan for that. Now, well, so let me think about that. So what you're telling me is basically everybody lined up head up. So my whole, so my whole defend the double wing by running the double wing thing may not be so bad after all. Is that what you're telling you're me? You're not very far off. 
earlier in the podcast, I had this idea where we ran the double wing on defense, basically like down block to down blocker, all that stuff. So we're at practice and I'm like, I'm trying because this team ran the double wing. I'm like, I'm trying this. And so we, (laughs) I have it on film. I have two clips of it on my iPhone somewhere of us lining up in the double wing against the double wing. And like, they do the crazy Spider-Man motion. We do the crazy Spider-Man motion. Like, the the back the quarterback spins so the back the backer spins like it's, it's stupid. I got a kick out of that. I don't think anybody else found that great. But um, so why do you have to do the plans with the twos, the fours, and the nines? What 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 is it that creates that issue? You just can't get the doubles. You have to figure out who you want to double. So you typically have to double at the point of attack, and uh, basically you have to single up your, your guard in that case, because uh, normally you know you you definitely try to rip the tight end inside to try to get, um, you know, at least more guys building the wall because it's really a gap power. You're trying to run as a, as a staple and even your counter is really an a gap counter. So you're trying to move people horizontally and laterally um, to the other side and, and trying to, you know, get that windshield wiper effect. And when you put that two in there or you get a four or five in there and you, you, you force that single block, you just don't get that the same movement. And you don't get that a gap crease that you would always want. So sometimes the play has to get a little bit wider. You have to get into a different play in some situations. So that that always that was always one defensive look that was, you know, definitely something that you had to have planned for and be able to uh, be able to figure out. I remember when we stalled the offense. Patrick was really big on this. He made us line up on the hash because he always wanted the backs mm-hmm. running up the hash, running up yeah, the that tracks. Was a huge, huge visual. I still do the same thing in the spring. I mean, when we're running, you know, traditional 11 personnel or, or 20 personnel, you know, power, it's like I set them on the hash in our mesh drill. I set them on our hash when we run it, um, you know, for doing any type of like, um, you know, run, run install stuff. Like we do it there so that they have that landmark to stick down. It's, it was such a huge coaching point because when you get that visual, you literally get to see, did the double teams move, you know, the, the power side, off the hash, you know, are your pullers rapid tight, you know, inside out and be able to take that, that tight track to basically force the backer to go one way. And then is that back staying in that hip or that guard or the second puller in the, in the double wing and staying on that hash and staying downhill. Cause the, the thing you always wanted to make sure is that, that, that play is not a lateral C gap play. I mean, it is downhill, a gap power to, to start that offense. So that was such a huge coaching point in a visual that I still take with me to, you know, to spread football still. Whether it's the double wing, it's a single wing. I mean, I wouldn't advocate you could do the wing T, but it, it, I'm telling you, and every defensive coach is going to be pissed at me for saying this, but if you coach in a spread offense and you don't feel like you're getting the physicality you want, I don't mean mental toughness. I'm not talking about that the double wing is going to transform you and from Urkel to, to Schwarzenegger. But I'm talking about when you're spending as much time as you have to pass proing in high school football and you still want to be able to get downhill runs or you want to have something to freak it. Maybe, it's, maybe you're into the psychological warfare like I am and you just want something to freak out the other team. It's a great option. It is a fantastic option to do, and I cannot recommend it enough. I have also advocated the single wing. Anything that's hard to defend and then will take a lot of time, 
I'm telling you. And we wouldn't practice it during the spring at Sarah. We would not introduce it. I don't believe we introduced it until the fall. We never went double wing, one-on-one, good versus good, ever. Because you couldn't. Because half of the, first of all, you don't want that happening in practice. Second of all, half your best players are on the offense. It's, it's like, you know, we're a team with 65 kids that's platooned and completely. Um, and we should have gotten into this, how we shared players, maybe next podcast. But, you know, we were 98, 99% of the time platooned, but we would come together. Well, now all of a sudden you're half your starting defense is on on the offense. And so we would work some half line stuff. We would work good on good, but it was low. It was just a blocking scheme. It was low impact. And we repped it on air and on bags. Cause it was all about identifying who the blocks were. So we would go on the sleds and yes, our sleds, the greatest thing ever when you're running outside zone, if you're an outside zone team or a wide zone team, no, maybe not, you know, maybe the new style of running, but I tell you what, and and I and I'll leave and I'll leave this discussion up to people who are smarter than me on the offensive line. I know that's one of the cool things to say now is sleds are terrible and whatever. But when you're running the double wing and you're running the quote unquote De La Salle blocking progression and you're trying to get your second step in the ground quicker than the guy across from you, and you are shoulder blocking or blocking with flippers, and you're just trying to fire off and dominate somebody, go on the sled because there's not a lot of movement. Because you're not going to get any, I mean, you are praying for somebody to blitz you inside versus the double wing because you just block them down and you're out the gate. So people who have half a brain are not going to blitz it. So you go on, you beat the crap out of those sleds and you get on those bags and you teach those techniques and you're preaching those double teams or you're having two guys step together and you're working the combos and really not even a combo. It's a double team. We're not coming off the backers. This ain't your, this ain't your, you know, 2021 power where you're doubling and you're looking to come off on the backside linebacker. We would displace linemen into the backs of linebackers. We weren't looking to come off, but you go and you work those techniques. You can do it. You can do it in shells. You don't need to be diving and cutting it live. I mean, we never did that. I think that's another misnomer, but it gives you an attitude. Fourth and one, we're running power, right? Or we're running counter left or, you know, we're, this is what we're doing. When it was nut cutting time, we had something to hang our hat on. And maybe it's old school, maybe it's antiquated, but I really I really believe in that that setup. So anything else to add on the double wing conversation? No, the um the unique thing was like, you know, like our back stayed re- like relatively healthy actually in that package. I mean, the 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 funny thing is like it's actually a pretty back friendly offense because they're not taking like a lot of direct head-on shots because the fullers are basically, you know, basically leading on the uh, the alley and stuff like that. So it's like that's why I wasn't really worried about slamming our quarterback in there sometimes and like even running him up in there on the power. I mean, the running back we had or the quarterback we had was a different cat, but I mean, you know, I, I was I was comfortable throwing them up in there because you know you're basically riding a wave of of blockers. I mean, you're you're basically moving what nine gaps over there. Nine and two. The two polars. It's nine and two. So I and mean, the kick out. Yeah, not, and the quarterback nine gaps moving over there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's a, it's a pretty, pretty fun offense. I, mean, I, I had a good time with it. Well, and quarterback power out of that, it's a great play, but we, Lecky was vertically challenged. And so 
I mean, he would spin around so quick that he'd fake the toss and would have the ball and you couldn't find him. Yeah. You have this massive humanity firing out at you. Well, you know, you tell your dealing will peek through your gap. Well, there's no gap. There's literally no gap. There's foot to foot. And then what are you going to do? Look over the lineman. Well, go ahead and see what happens. Man, I'm I'm talking like a real offensive coach over here now. I think uh, when you talk about the double wing all the time, and all of a sudden I turn into fucking Alex Gibbs. Um, but anyway, so three more questions for you, and then I'm gonna let you go. Hot takes: Who has better football, Texas or California? Uh, I'd love to play them to find out. Ooh, nice, 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 nice. I hear they don't like leaving Texas that they'll let you come to them, but they won't come to you. Is that true? I haven't seen very many Texas teams come out and leave. I think Duncanville might've left this past year, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind. I mean, we have openings uh, for next year and we'd be happy to host a Texas team. We'll see how many people call you because I, I always see the spicy talk on Twitter and yet I don't see Bosco playing Texas teams. Now, I'm not, Steven's not saying anything. This is my observations, okay? So this is purely Chris Vassar. I haven't seen them play many Texas teams, but I've seen them go to Hawaii. I've seen them, didn't you play a team in D.C.? Yeah. Or did they come to you? I can't remember. No, we, we, played, we played in D.C. Well, that was before I got there, but uh, they played in D.C. Florida. I think there was a game talked about in Georgia. I've seen everywhere else, but I've never seen a Texas game. And I don't think it's because Bosco doesn't like to travel. I will leave it at that. Um, and again, that is, that is my, these are Chris Vassar's thoughts. These are not Stephen Lowe's thoughts. So don't give him any hate. Okay. Normally I save this question to the end, but I'm going to ask it before I ask the last question. We're going to switch it up. Championship question uh, I give the scenario is it is a state championship game. There's 11 seconds left. It's fourth and nine on the 35 yard line going in. You have a really great field goal kicker. You're down by two. You're just trying to get the first down. You got a timeout. So you're going to try to get the first call the timeout, get your kicker on the field, put another ring on your finger. What are you going to call in that scenario? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to stick in the vertical family, but um, I'm probably going to stack us in two by two and run some switch release verticals and uh, have the abilities for us to drop out and stick it out at the uh, at the sticks. And, uh, you know, if we're getting some sort of off coverage and if we're getting uh, any type of man or low look, we're, we're going to go up top and take a shot. That's the first vertical answer that we've had. You know, because I usually throw something about the throwing into the sticks, and I and I realized that I may have been influencing answers because I kept being like, you know, you don't have to go for it, but I don't need to tell you this. I know that you've listened to most of the podcasts I've done, so you know the scenario. But I like it. I like it. That's not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say nope. four verts with comebacks on the outside. Maybe the guy to the field. Yeah. So three verts, but with the X on a comeback. Whoever's to the boundary. Well, we, we read our verticals. So, I mean, it's basically if we're, if we're even relieving, if we're getting basically capped off and we're, we're going to go ahead and sit it back down and, and drop out of our route. 
And they do, because they used to pull that shit. You know, I've been at places where they pull that shit in one-on-ones. And I'm like, y'all don't do that in a game, but they really do. And it was super frustrating, because we'd have a guy bodied up, reading that release, and he'd be ready to take off and play the fade, and then all of a sudden snap it back off, and the ball's coming out on time. It was... And then you have Ortiz in your ear. What was what did he, what was the stupid shit he used to say? What was some of the things he used to? Say? I miss him uh, uh, once, uh, even though I wanted to kill him. He's a fr- He's a sophomore. I mean, he's a sophomore. He would just feel like uh, doing yeah. that stuff. And I think anything and everything. Oh my I god! Mean, he, he found an opportunity. I need to get. You know what I need? You know the equivalent of home cooking. Like you come home and you get that home cooked meal. You know what I need to do is I need to get a good one-on-one session with Ortiz. I need to I need to tell I need to get a hold of the student managers at Sarah. And I say y'all need to film one-on-ones and I want Ortiz mic'd up and I want him to know that he's mic'd up obviously because I want him to ham it up for me and just give Mons the business. Um oh, man. All right, here's the real championship question. Last one of the day. Okay. I'm giving you a free pass to embarrass me on here. <laughs> What's one vast story, but don't be cruel, that you think would be funny or embarrassing that people would find interesting or funny or whatever to hear? Oh, man. You can only pick one. Uh, unless they're somehow related in some way. And, they, well, okay, okay. I, and I ex-girlfriends have... are off limits, by the way. Oh, come on, man. That's like half the story. No white Broncos. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, I got a common theme here for this one. Uh, oh no! Being an office mate with with my with my best friend here is definitely interesting because. Um, well, let me start off with with a story from St. Francis. Now, hold on. First. Before I let you go on this, I'm giving you a free pass. Just make sure it's truthful. Don't embellish, okay? Because I I know how it's, these stories. No, this is these stories get embellished. Scott, this is Scott's honor right here. This is uh, whatever. One hundred percent. I regret this, is, this already. Uh, this is facts. <laughs> All right, uh, all right. Let me let me guess. I'll start with the story from St. Francis first, and how it carried over to Sarah too. So, uh, being an office mate with Vass is always interesting because, uh, you know, basically, uh, no matter where you were, uh, you, you would definitely know Vass is around. First of all, we had a Red Bull wall uh, at St. Francis. Basically, you know, Vass would crush through so many cases of the Red Bull and not take out the trash for it, first of all, so it would be sitting there with the, all the empty boxes. I collected I them. Up, I took the cans uh-huh. out. I kept the boxes folded up. Make sure you tell them the whole story. So uh, well, Did I, did all, I or did I not take, flatten the de- the boxes out? Be truthful. You the box. Okay, no. just go ahead. You just the box. Go ahead. So I decided to uh, cut all those boxes and make like a uh, like a photo wall that you know, you'd see at a club or uh you know, a fine establishment that you can stand in front and take some photos in front of. <laughs> Those pictures, by but, the uh, way, are on my Instagram. If you go to Coach Vass, <laughs> I never post on Instagram. But if you scroll all the way down when it first kind of came out, that's one of the first couple pictures. There's a trophy of the trophy we won in front of all the Red Bull boxes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, this common theme would be uh, basically, you know, Vass would kind of start off in the small corner of the office. And then you all of a sudden see his stuff kind of uh, start to expand and, and take over rooms. It got so bad to the point where the head coach and I had to share his desk and pretty much the both of us were sandwiched on the head coach's desk, you know, basically like hot dog buns. 
just uh, buddied up next to each other. Yeah. And then at Sarah, he had a Tupperware, like a giant or a giant Rubbermaid bin uh, that we we ended up having to throw all his belongings in because uh, you know stuff would migrate out. And it got to the point where it erupted, so we started calling him Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Patrick snapped one day, and he's like, "You got to come in here, and you got to." He was like throwing stuff away. He ended up like throwing books of mine away. Like he threw away my Miami <laughs> Notre Dame like fierce rivalry Catholics versus convicts book. I'm like Patrick, come on, man. Yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. They called Mount it- Vesuvius is real. Yeah, and then somebody called it Vassarville. So we did the whole breaking on down to Vassarville. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, well, okay. First of all, in my defense, okay, let's, let's get the truth out. Okay. When I moved, so I went to Millsaps, I left, I came back to Florida. And when I was living in California at the end of my time there, so I was living with my buddy Scott at the time and he was about to get married and I was going to move out, but then I ended up getting the job at Millsap. So I moved out, but moved to Jackson, Mississippi. I go to Florida. I come back home. And so I called Scott and I said, listen, man, I know you. And, and at this point it was April. Well, I'd called him before that, but it was like April of 2012. He just got married in September of the previous year. And I was like, listen, man, I need a place to stay cheap. Like I will, I'll, I'll, be out of your hair. I'll never bother you. You'll never see me or hear me. Like, I know you just got married, but I need a place so I can get on my feet and I'll move out by the start of football season. So he said, okay. He was very nice. So I moved. And plus I lived like what, an hour and 20 minutes from saying, I mean, it took me almost an hour and a half to get to work every day. So I was, I was motivated to move. And so I, I, I find a place in, Sunnyvale at the time and apartment. My dad flew out, helped me move. Scott helped me move. Everything was great. I settled into my new place. And that night I start to notice there's a few bugs. I'm like, Oh God, we got to take care of this. A couple hours go by. There's mini roaches everywhere, everywhere. And that, like, I knew right then and there. I, like, stopped unpacking. I'm like, nope, that's it. I'm no longer, I, I, I can't live here. So I go to the apartment people. I said, listen, you got to fix this. So I gave them two weeks, basically, to get their lives together. And they, they allegedly tented the room out and fixed it. Well, I come back. Now there's a bunch of dead roaches. And they weren't huge, but they were small. And they were, like, ants and stuff and but they were either dead and then their buddies came by and they were all and so i said i'm out of here i was really homeless for a couple weeks i mean i was i i was living on my car legitimately living out of my car and um i was looking for a place to live and i couldn't find anything because it was just so expensive i found an ad on craigslist for a woman who was renting a room but i didn't even read the ad right it was, you know, $800 to rent a room in a house. So I immediately drove over there and I was begging. I was like, please, I'm sure you're getting a lot of applicants. I told her my story. I'm like, I'm looking at this private school down the street. Like, please, I'm begging you. She's like, well, in the ad, I put that I only wanted commuters because it's, it's a common theme in the Bay Area to live far away. To drive in because it's cheaper to own an apartment. This is how crazy the barrier is. It is cheaper to own an apartment or a house two hours away from where you work 
to drive into work on Monday morning and then rent a room out from somebody for the whole week or by the week and then go home on the weekend. Still cheaper than living in the Bay Area. It's insane. She goes, well, I only really wanted a commuter. I'm like, please raise the rent. I don't care. Like, I need a place to live. Football season's about to start. I'm freaking out. So she's like, okay, that's fine. So she takes me in. So I'm living in a bedroom with a 50-year-old woman and, like, an 8-year-old girl. And there was only one bathroom. So in my defense, I had nowhere to put anything. (laughs) I, like would shower at school because sharing a bathroom with a woman and a girl when you're 27 year old man or whatever was at the time. And it was just supposed to be a temporary thing, but we worked out well. I was never home. So I ended up living there for like two years. Cause I was literally never home. I just lived at St. Francis until it was time to come home. And then I did the same thing when I went to Sarah, I would stay super late and then come home sleep and then go back. And so I didn't really have a place to live. So in my defense, I didn't really have a place to call home that was very comfortable. So I brought my stuff with me and I lived that lifestyle. So while you're laughing at Steven's story about, and I mean, there was, it was, and he, he was, he was kind. There were like dirty socks. Like they would find loose, dirty socks. It was gross. Like I admit, like (laughs) it was not great. But it started in, like, one corner of the room and then, like, took over. Uh, So, yeah. He's got plenty more embarrassing stories. Um, Like, when I borrowed my girlfriend's car, I took her on a trip. (laughs) If this, if this, if this episode, if when I put this episode out, if it gets retweeted a hundred times, I will post the video. There's a video of me. Where we went up to, uh, what was it called? I mentioned it pre-interview. But we I went up, and then for some reason we had to take her car. I had to drive her car. Well, she had a Mazda Miata. Well, if you've ever met me, I'm 6'3". I'm a very large human. Even when I was thinner, I'm just a large person. Size 15 feet, size 16 ring. Like, I'm a big person. And so my big ass somehow, some way... Got into her little ass Miata, like four months removed from a major. Well, it was pretty major. I mean, it was a minor surgery that turned into a big thing. Like four months removed from a (laughs) pretty in-depth surgery. And I had to drive her little two-door Miata off a mountain, literally. And I had to drive back up. And Steven got the full video of me trying to get in the car. (laughs) Getting in the car and trying to pull out and drive down the street and it is pretty pretty good so if this gets 100 retweets i will send out the video that we still have and i believe i flick off the camera i mean there's there's so there's so many um i don't even know where to i mean we could go on forever but i'm sure nobody would want to hear it anyway steven brother thank you so much for coming on this is two years overdue actually yeah, the first podcast I ever did was with you, with USA Football, right? I think we did yeah. one together. They mm-hmm. wanted to interview me, and I'm like, mm, that'd be cool, but like, get me. I was trying to get them to get you on, and then I'm like, well, why don't we just do it together? So this is long overdue. I'm glad I found the format. You know, we've done stuff, done stuff with Huddle, and I think Glazier or something along the way, but finally got to have you on, just you. I appreciate your time and your insight and your stories, and um. Uh, I just appreciate your friendship, man. Thanks so much. 
yeah, man, I'm just so proud of you and everything you've done and just uh, to see how far you've come and, and taken this run with it. I mean, you're, you're every favorite football coach's favorite football coach. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome to see. And it's, uh, it's nice to say that I knew vast way back when, <laughs> before, uh, before you hit it as the, uh, you know, the, the Mecca of football knowledge. So back when I was uh, smoking uh, heaters and terrorizing you with Eric Berry <laughs> and NCAA, you know it. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Right, and man. I will talk to you soon. Thanks again for tuning in to hear my best good friend, Stephen Lowe, offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at St. John Bosco. Tell stories, talk some offense. Had a great time. Love that man. Miss seeing him every day and competing. What a great dude. Go to the show's account on Twitter at RunVassOption, my account at CoachVass, and the defense's account at MDGA Podcast. Make sure you check out all of my links on linktree.com slash coachvass. This includes links to the YouTube channel, my Patreon, the website, all of my CoachTube courses, as well as the CoachTube Offensive Course of the Week featuring Brett Dearman. Also check out Bobby Peters' book, Alex Kirby's book, both fantastic. Give the sponsors some love. They help make this show possible. And remember... Whether you love four verts or going three yards in a cloud of dust, we have you covered.